Hello and welcome to Too Rash, Too Unadvised, the will to babble on will to battle. My name is Liam Nolan. Mine's Wero Kuyuki. And I'm Alejandro. And today we are discussing chapters 10 and 11. If you want to ask us any questions or be on the show, please feel free to reach out to us at 2rash2unadvised at gmail.com. That's 2 is in the number 2, and I may check that email so no spoilers, please. I'll support us more importantly on our Patreon. With that out of the way, and many thanks to our Lord and Savior, Seth. An immortal tyrant, while of course, kill. Let's get on with the show. Okay, uh, so welcome to the show. Thank person you. Person whose name I I remember. Alondro. Um, yes. Alondro. Alejandro. Okay, we can cut out that I didn't remember that, right? We could leave it in. One or the other. Well, you have named all of the things we can do about it, but <laughs> all right. Uh, so, is there anything you want to get into? As a new guest. Oh, there before is. Before we get into the chapters, there are several right. things I would what like to get into as a new guest. Um, first of all, here is a flaming hot take. Carlisle is good, actually. <laughs> all right, let's, sure. I'm willing to get into this, but you're, you're wrong. Uh, and, and you're going to have to address that. All right, fair. <laughs> so basically, um, Carlisle is um, one of the reasons why I was so interested in, like, one of the reasons why I was so um, absorbed by Two Like the Lightning when it was happening, mm-hmm. because I was able to relate to Carlisle on kind of a personal level um, as soon as they were introduced. Um, I He was very kind of uh, gentle and um, very sort of um, always kind of like treating people very sort of deferentially. Um, and he was very kind of innocent and I, I feel that I'm comparatively innocent. Um, and also, he talked about people's religions with them, but like in this gentle way. And um, and so I, unlike you, Liam, um, immediately liked not only Carlisle, but also the cousins and also the senseiers because of the character of Carlisle. Um, and so I'm like the exact opposite of you, basically. Um, with regards to how we view Carlisle. And so um, as the book went on, um, I eventually, you know, as you did, saw that Carlisle is not necessarily representative of senseers or cousins, um, but I still valued the senseers who were like Carlisle over the senseers who were not like Carlisle. And I, the whole cousins are women thing was kind of a surprise to me as a person who has never identified as anything other than a man. Um, But it eventually got me to realize that some of these qualities of myself um, that I was aware of, such as like sort of, um, I would say like gentleness, but that's so hard to define. It's it's like almost a kind of passivity too. Um, I'm revealing an awful lot about myself by saying all this, but um, basically it, I'm, bad at being a man in the 
uh, traditional 18th century sense and in a way that aligns me with, um, you know, the cousins in the sense of traditional 18th century womanhood. Um, and so without this series, I would never have come to that kind of uh, realization. So um, it's so I would say that my gender nowadays is mostly like male by default, um, because that's the way that Mycroft uses the pronoun he to refer to Carlisle in the first book is he is biologically a man, therefore he gets the male pronoun. But then I realized that, no, um, in this society where gender has become completely disattached from um, any biological characteristics of the person, um, it would make more sense to refer to Carlyle as she on this basis. But because, like, it's just really a, um, a lot of things. So anyway... Um, I guess that's not really my defense for why Carlisle is good, other than I personally found them relatable, and I think that they provide a uh, sort of, like, innocence and, um, like, their whole life, maybe not their whole life, but um, certainly in their association with Julia, they've become mostly sort of tainted by circumstances. Um, it was never their choice entirely to become the sort of uh betrayer that they became um in in any sense like that and to me carlisle almost felt like more of a protagonist of the first book than mycroft certainly they were more sympathetic to me anyway i don't know how other people feel of course um and so to me it was almost like the story of two like the lightning was um this uh, you know, this nice person discovers a horrible secret was kind of the, the plot of To Like the Lightning for me. And so part of Carlisle's journey in Seven Surrenders is trying to process that. Um, and one of the lines that stuck out to me from To Like the Lightning that I felt was particularly applicable to me and why I chose to join the cousin hive kind of in my mind was um, Thisbe, I think... Yes, it was Thisbe. She said to Carlisle, uh, now the cousin shows their true colors, throws sex or violence into something, and it has to be evil just because you say so. And I don't agree, of course, that sex and violence are evil. However, I have noticed about myself that I generally um, disprefer, that's not a word, I generally dislike to consume media that contains a large amount of sexual or violent content, which is why I was so surprised that I liked Terragnota <laughs> as much as I did. Um, but I think the one thing that Terragnota does with this, with the sexual or violent content is that it always puts it in a context where it has some kind of purpose or it has some kind of message to, to explain to you. Like you can learn about the characters by how they have sex with one another, as you pointed out. Um, and so um, I think uh Heloise was going overboard to say that the cousins, like cousins and women are an isomorphism, but I do think that the cousins serve an important purpose. Um, and I think that uh, Carlisle, who has a very cousinly personality, is kind of the an, an impression of this purpose that I as a reader can relate to more than Briar Kosala, who seems to be very... Uh, I don't know. She seems too far off and like in charge. So um, I don't know. Carlisle just really spoke to me 
and I, I find it hard to express, but that, that was more or less my experience with Carlisle. Like, almost every decision okay, they made, so, I was like, hmm, that's probably what I would do. Oh, boy. Uh, so, here, here's the problem. Um, you've done a clever thing here, which is you have taken this position and made it into a fundamental element of, like, who you are as a person. Not and entirely. On the one hand, right, like, solid move, uh, because it makes it very difficult for me to make any particularly harsh criticisms about it, because then it's like I'm criticizing you. On the other hand, three hands, in fact, uh, let's say on the other foot, <laughs> I just had a conversation, like, two days ago about if I'm too mean on this podcast. <laughs> um, and I... Still kind of think the answer is no. I don't think I'm particularly Okay, mean. so for uh, the record, but... you can criticize Carlisle, and I will not take it as a criticism of myself, because there are also Great. some things Carlisle does that I do not agree with. So feel free. Excellent. Because the, the third hand here is that you've full-blown been set up. Um, the, if you put me in a position uh, like this one, you know, the the thing I'm going to do every time is is continue to argue for the things that I think are correct. Um, Naturally. I'm thrilled to hear that, though. If if a certain person is wondering if the next things I say are mean, please refer back to explicit permission to criticize Carlyle. Here's the thing. The first thing we hear about Carlyle is that he cloaks himself daily in a wrap of lies, and things really only get worse from there. Right, so, so, so... I'm shocked to hear that you heard that and were like, this is my guy. Well, what I related to was Carlisle's personality, not the fact that they were surrounded by lies. However, I will say that just because a character has things to learn does not make them uh, morally uh, at fault. I agree, but... But it's the, it's the, it's not a cloak of misunderstandings. It's it's he's wrapping himself explicitly in lies. Um, Is that the, you've, so the you've first gone on line in the book describes him with. Yes, uh, it I remember might it. literally be the second because I think it goes. He wakes up. Here's the date. He's full of energy because of this thing. He wraps himself in his sensei's scarf. He believes that it's really important. This is one of the many lies he wrapped, he cloaks himself in daily to survive. And that's not a great opener <laughs> to a character, right? I found it to be a very intriguing opening to the character. Yeah, right? I think I think fundamentally, so I, I think I disagree with the notion that Carlisle is, in this, uh, Carlisle betrayal is, is not important to Carlisle's character. Like, because the reason why he's with Julia is because, yeah, we've gotten to this, um, is we have. It's because he did something terrible no, already. No, he, he, it is. No, he it's he because broke senseiers. He, he broke whatever their equivalent is. Yeah, he turned of, in like, attorney client privilege. A client uh, who was planning to murder somebody. Like we can argue whether this is bad or not. It certainly is yeah. bad relative to his position as a senseier. He did save somebody's life, right? Like let's not lose lose sight He's of the picture here. He swore an oath to do sensaying correctly. It's not and didn't. Even clear to me that this is like part of the sensei oath. It isn't? That's incredibly clear to me. I think the way they talk about it and the fact that Carlisle didn't do jail time <laughs> makes it possible that this is just like an assumption nope. they have about uh assumption they have about sensei's. No, he didn't that's because of Julia. 
Um, <laughs> the sensei's secrets are kept in the sanctum sanctorum. No, the sensei's religions have no sanctum sanctorum. That's correct. Maybe he didn't give away specifically the religious elements. Like, it's one thing if he, like, Carlyle went out and, When like... was this? Was this in Seven Surrenders? Yeah, I think oh, he found I out I can't then. look it up. Wow. What specifically did he do again? Why can't you look it up? Because I, I only have a digital copy of the first book. Oh! I'm hoping to get a digital copy of the last book. No, I can't, because I can't look it up. Do not. <laughs> Will I read it? You're, uh, you're down with me. What you're I... just going to have to memorize the location of every word on every page. Well, you know, this is just like high school. Yeah, go on. <laughs> what I remember about this incident is that Dominic said to Carlisle, Thou brokest thine oath and tippest off the police, which I remembered because of the exceedingly 18th century style of the sentence. Um, that sounds like an oath to me. Right, but it's an oath, but we don't know whether it has any legal weight because we don't know whether Carlisle suffered any legal consequences for this action. We also don't know... Like, uh, Dominic, this is the thing that happens. A lot of the, the, the real crucial things we learned about, about Carlisle happen in, like, the context of people trying to break him down. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of suspicious of, like, the precise wordings that they use. Right. Like, a lot of people are well, trying to make Carlisle feel <laughs> as bad as possible about things that they did. Isn't like, it interesting that the way to make Carlisle feel as bad as possible is to just tell him about himself? <laughs> That's true of lots of people. Mm-hmm. Independent of whether they're morally bad. Mm-hmm. Like, and the I think fact... it's a lot easier if they're morally bad. <laughs> well, but everyone makes mistakes, right? And and the thing about Carlisle is that they feel these mistakes very deeply, mm-hmm. and they really regret them, and that's why people are always beating up on them, and they always re- react so brokenly. It's not because they've made worse mistakes than anyone else. It's because they feel it so deeply. I I think I agree that Carlyle has not made worse mistakes than anyone else. But if I can borrow a concept from my co-host last chapter, if I was ranking like the, the badness of them as people and I had a list of all the characters, um, Carlyle's probably near the top of that list. Because Carlyle doesn't even live up to his own sort of uh, convictions. Mm-hmm. That's because Carlyle has very strong that. convictions. Well... So does everyone in this book. That isn't actually... Really, you're saying... That's everyone. Really, you're saying Julia has very strong convictions that she lives up to. Yeah, that's true. Julia's a really good example of someone who I'm not sure what their convictions are. I think Julia just Uh, sort of does whatever. I also think Julia might... Yeah, you you got me on (laughs) on specifically Julia. Julia might just kind of do whatever seems fun at the time. Right. Uh, but But Madame, I think, does have some set of convictions that she lives up to. Are they ones that I in the real world necessarily think are valuable? Probably not. Um, so much hedging. <laughs> it's the appropriate amount of... I want to be ready for the day when I find a way to make Madame be the good guy again. Um, Dominic clearly has a set of things he lives up to. You know, uh, it, it, That is a characteristic of the people in this book, and Carlyle consistently fails to do it. Their version of gentleness... I think is mostly imaginary and only extends until the point when they sort of decide they're bored and then they'll turn around and betray everyone who they uh, know and trust. I wouldn't say so, bored. I, I, I would not bored describe. Bored is slightly hyperbolic. You're, you're right. Um, I'm doing a rhetoric on Carlisle because I dislike them. But yeah, you talked a lot about how gentle and passive Carlisle was. And... Uh, 
you know, I don't know that I'd call them passive. Mm. I think that's probably how Carlyle thinks of themselves. But if you look at the stuff they do, you know, they pretty directly orchestrate the fall of, of several empires. Wait a minute. Where are you getting that from? True. They stormed into Madame's inner chamber and started a fight that led to the outing of all the leaders of the world. They just Casimir Perry started just that. Forgot that happened. They just they just were there. Yeah, Carlyle literally just existed, and then Casimir Perry got upset. Like that is wholly on Perry. Yeah, Perry. Yeah, this is Perry's plot. This is happening literally on Perry's timeline. Perry had like it was. Um, it was Ganymede who got upset at Carlyle, not Perry. Fair. I mean, uh, Perry. yeah, that's true. But like, I guess it's like again, caused almost entirely by Perry. Uh, Carlyle was just sort of there. Carlyle was the um, catalyst, maybe, but even that's arguable. They, they were yeah. only the catalyst insofar as they were born. <laughs> okay, fine. They would you prefer if I was upset at them for luring so many people into the tragically misunderstood Julia's hands? <laughs> Are you angry about that? Uh, it, it really depends on how they did it. But I'm, I'm picturing Carlisle, and I don't think they're doing it in a way that I like. What, what way would you like? What are, what are the outlines of what's an acceptable way to lure someone into Julia's grasp? If, if Carlisle was just so persuasive that they convinced these people that Julia was correct and to go obey Julia, I'd be pretty on board. I think Carlyle probably mostly just kind of guilt-tripped and judged them until they gave in. I don't think that's true. I think Carlyle said, you know what? We've been making lots of progress here in our sensei sessions. But you know what would be really, really good for you? What I think would be really good for you is you went and saw one session with Julia. I know he sounds harsh, but it would really allow us to make lots of progress in our, in our discussions. What do you think? That sounds about right. Are you calling that not guilt tripping? How would that be? What? How is that guilt tripping? Because if you say no now, it's like, oh, you don't care about making progress? That's fine. <laughs> it's only guilt tripping. This is entirely within your head, Liam. Fine. Uh, I don't think that's how they... I, I don't think that's what we got at the, in their last conversation with uh, the Sneer Weeks booth, Bosch, before the Thisbe stuff started. Of course, why would that be there? I assume they're going to fall back to kind of what they're best at. They were being threatened with, like, death. <laughs> this is not a typical, like, I don't know, sensei session. Yeah, so that's why I'm assuming they would fall back to what they're best at. I don't... I think is, I think the thing I, I, I just, like, set out is the only thing you can really pull off when you're, like, five sessions deep or something. Fine. Look, I can't get behind being a big fan of a character just because they're gentle and caring and passive. Uh, I understand. I, Which makes it hard for me to, um, to know... Like, all the stuff Carlisle did is a big element of why I'm frustrated with him. Um, so if I sort of put that to the side, it is a lot harder to come up with reasons I think Gar Carlisle is like a garbage character who they should just stick in Bridger's garbage hole. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't know, you, 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 previously you talked about things which Carlisle for sure did, which aren't the, the bringing out empires. For example, um, that that bit when there was sort of a, a read in the wind uh, between masters. Well, that, that constant string of betrayals? Yeah. Yeah, that wasn't great. I think Carlisle just sort of like but I do, but I But here's the thing, Dominic that mm -hmm. we've just heard... Is a, is a chunk of Carlyle that has been 
portrayed as a positive from our guest is our guest sat here and said they think they would do all of that also. So I presume pointing that out as a bad thing wouldn't be very persuasive. I see. I said I would do all of that. Not necessarily that all of it was good, but um, and like this is a days of transformation for uh, the world, but it's also a days of transformation for Carlisle specifically. Yeah. Um, they've been through a lot. They, they're, they're like, um, so much like adrenaline and stuff. And there's so many choices that they have to make within like a really short time. And, um, I'm not going to go through all of them and say this choice was good and this choice was bad. But, um, the idea of like swearing complete loyalty to someone, um, is not something that most people do, I think. And um, to, to, to claim that Carlyle, like it was more common in the 18th century than it is now. And so to cast Carlyle as a betrayer um, against like their oath of absolute loyalty to someone, first of all, that's a very Masonic worldview, which as a cousin, I am opposed to. And secondly, um, it's not necessarily applicable to Carlyle's direct um, situation because all of these are like um, choices that they make um, in a pit. Okay, how about this? I'm not going to say Carlisle should swear absolute loyalty to someone for the rest of their life. I'm going to say swear any amount of loyalty for like a week. Like that surely isn't too much to ask. I think in, in Carlisle's current state, it is a little bit much to ask. Yeah. Well, then go around swearing, go around agreeing to be loyal to fewer people. Well, if people didn't go around tracking Carlisle down, do you? Uh, drug Carlisle, corner Carlisle with uh, with religious obligations, etc. I think Carlisle would have tried to go home at some points. Right, and like... Um, he could have. Plenty of chances. Yeah, the... the pr- no one was following Carlisle around, demanding he continue the quest. It wasn't a quest. He was like... Um, I don't think that's true. He was sent piecemeal, like... From several locations to several other locations. Um, uh, he could have... He was told to go home by the servicers at the end of Two Like the Lightning. Everything after that was totally... He wasn't even instructed by Julia to do the stuff after that. Yes. No, what happened after that is that uh, he was cornered by Dominic. Uh, first of all, the co had to like, try to connect him. So, I don't know, it's, it's describing it as simple advice is, like, not really getting to the heart of why I think Carlisle was freaked out about that. <laughs> uh, right, so after he leaves, mm-hmm. could have gone home. Like, he got out of it, right? Yeah, he could have um, gone home. But he, he goes and to talks Dominic. to Dominic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dominic wins the conversation. That's, he, okay. Dominic Mostly. him emotionally abuses him. Her. The pronouns change at that point. Yes, that's right. Then he... Uh, then he becomes a woman when Dominic <laughs> defeats him in an argument. Uh, in my cross so eyes. Now he's agreed. Sure. Now he agrees. Okay, Dominic. Uh, we'll go and save Bridger. And then does he do that? No, not really. Um, sorry, does she do that? No. Goes off, kind of does some other stuff for a bit. Gets her mentor thrown in jail. That's not what happened next. Is Carlisle uh, goes back to the Sunni Beach? I am forgetting bash, the timeline here. Uh, right, which is by and the way, in a car, usually right? where Bridger is, climbs from the car, falls asleep because it's 
been a long week, uh, ends up in the middle of a conversation. I think we disagree about that. Yeah, I don't you, think you thought it was on asleep. purpose. I think it was fully an accident at this point. They're just like tripping over. I think Skaldal is a better spy than this, first of all. Uh, they better be. They were working for a very competent sensei. <laughs> and they were doing this for well for like years. I think this is like fully an accident. They just climbed into a car, accidentally made themselves too hidden, uh, woke up in the middle of a very secret conversation, was brought down to uh, the basement by Julia, drugged into su- uh, suicidal thoughts. Uh, Not by Julia, by Thisbe. Yeah, sorry, by Thisbe. Uh, turned Thisbe in for trying to murder her, uh, and then was dragged by by Papa to go uh, turn in Julia, uh, who then... Uh, delivered to him a fact which was considered by a court of law so emotionally abusive simply by its existence that he could not he could not be told by it. He was bought from mm-hmm. knowing it. Yeah. Um, and then he responded to that fact by going to figure out, try to figure out more. Uh, you know, not a great decision, but again, told a fact considered I'll by give. a court so emotionally abusive he should never learn it. <laughs> I will give Carlisle this one thing, and it's that hiding in the Mukta totally should have worked to spy on this conversation. Uh, Cato caught them on the most ridiculous <laughs> thing in this book, which sadly can no longer be Canterbeat. Um, <laughs> now it's that. A, I think that- a car that flies in the, in the stratosphere can circle the Earth in four hours, doesn't have sufficient thermal shielding, to hide the temperature of one person in a large room. I think the um, ludicrous. The windows are popped. Windows? Yeah. I don't think there should be windows. Why not? Right. Why would there be windows? Why wouldn't there be? It's test equipment. It's basically a rocket. Rockets have windows. And it's a museum piece, so they, they want to show it off to people, so you would think that there would be some way of, you know, looking into it. Yeah. If nothing Pop else. the windows. Uh, which you know, so, which are usually real thick because it's it's a test piece, right? Because um, you're gonna have a person in there. Uh, I don't know who built it. Uh, I'm not getting into the various rocket building um, design philosophies of the Soviets. And oh the boy, US. is is one of them thermal insulation? I bet real <laughs> rockets are thermally insulated. They are, uh, but the U.S. has more, always had had more of a uh, human based approach. Uh, when they designed mm. the rockets, as opposed to the Soviets, who had much more automation. Uh, so, hey, audience, if you know anything about rockets, um, if I was inside a rocket and it was in a warehouse, would the rocket, medium term, be able to to contain my body heat? Popped windows. I think they popped what windows. Win- <laughs> rockets have windows. Why would you put windows on your experimental test rocket? They do. What are you looking all at all the time? They do it on Apollo. Uh, Soviets did it with Soyuz. Um, I don't remember with the, um, the first generation of the Soviet rockets had. So you're telling me what? I could go into the Apollo, uh, capsule and I could just pop a window, go through the drive-thru. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think they had like openable windows. I'm on the ISS. I think they physically... You're saying I have one of those little, those crank bars and I'll just... Open up a window for a little bit. I think they physically some of the space took out in. the windows, which were usually very secured, so they could look inside. I agree. 
Also, the key element of being a window is that you can already look through it. And the key element of being a door is that it has hinges. <laughs> door is a wall with hinges. Yes. A window is a wall you can see through. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so you're you're a Carlisle fan. Yes. You're, you're big into the cousins. I also was shocked when it turned out the cousins were women. Um, I wouldn't say I was shocked because they because Mycroft had already said I have to I want to use the pronoun she for all cousins. And during the first book, I was like, wow. That, so this man is very nice, and so you just want to give him she. Wow, that seems very weird. And then the more I found out about gender in the society and how it's like completely decoupled from like um, anything else, then the more sense it made that Mycroft would use the she pronoun for cousins. I do think that cousins as an organization, I think I said this already, have feminine values, but that doesn't necessarily mean that every cousin is a woman and vice versa. Um, speaking of... No, actually, I don't want to get into that quite yet. Um, the other thing I liked about the cousins was their government. And um, this may oh, sound first. very silly, but um, at least in the way it was initially presented, um, it seemed to solve the politician problem, which is namely that the only people who want power should not have it. Um, and so if instead you just kind of suggest a whole bunch of things that, that like, there's no, um, and then the person ends up with the position. And also, there was no, like, legislators either. Um, so there was not all this sort of bureaucracy structure of a government, at least that I knew about. Um, and so it was more or less just, oh, well, if enough people suggest this, then it happens. It seemed very, um, it seemed to, like, cut out a lot of uh, stuff that, like a lot of like governments, a lot of the structure that governments have that is that I had always felt was kind of like a bit much. And also, um, upon, uh, nope, I'm not sure how I was going to that sentence. Okay. Then per our prior agreement, I will drop the topic and move on to something else. Oh, I want to mention um, something. Uh, simply that, um, so call, you mentioned that, that my uses is a male, he's a default pronoun. For, for Carlisle, it's not that, that Carlisle, the male is a default pronoun. It's that um, Madame... It's specifically for the inheritance. Yeah. Right. I meant default. I, I think that became clear late on. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Yeah. I, when you first read the books, it's a it's a totally reasonable assumption. Right. I meant default not in the sense of a person is by default male, but in the sense of this person is biologically male and so receives the male pronoun. I think... Fully, even if Carlisle was biologically uh, female, uh, Mycroft would be forced to use uh, he, him pronouns for... No, if Mycroft was... If Carlisle Carlisle was biologically female, Mycroft wouldn't be forced to use the pronouns because they wouldn't be uh, inheritors. Exactly. It is, if Carlisle was biologically female and the rules of inheritance worked differently, perhaps, but it is specifically for for that reason. But, But... Clearly, Madame raises raises men of all sexes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why does but she that's, care? But okay. who cares? It, it's the blood. This is the same situation all over again. Fucking... It is literally important that Carlyle carries royal genes and is an inheritor of royal genes. Royalty. Not even once. 
<laughs> um, well, you know, maybe once. <laughs> no, I stand by my claim. Um, so, uh, we start with chapter 10? 10, yes. Chapter 10. Is chapter 10 our secret truce? Yes. Yes. Or is chapter 10 repercussions? No, secret truce. Okay. Um, so what's, what's my first note for this chapter? We get, uh, a conversation first between Kosala and one of the Greenpeace members of Mitsubishi. The big question it raises is, who is the leak in the cousins? Um, the downside is I think this answer is literally any cousin. And then also, what is Dominic doing? Because I don't know. So not just... Not just any Greenpeace member, the Greenpeace director, uh, and the head yet. Let me say that word. Bendil had Padai. I always. I, Padai. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, what I find interesting is that Kosala is labeled as Kosala, but mm. Bondio Padier, or however you pronounce that, is uh, labeled as Greenpeace. Um, right. To me. I, Mycroft. No, you go. Sorry, I thought you were done the sentence. No, you go. Uh, I think Mycroft does that when the person speaking is speaking in a way that's particularly representative of their group or their affiliation. Then why isn't Kosala so cousins? Because Kosala is being Kosala here, not the cousins. But Greenpeace is speaking in a way that is particularly representative of Greenpeace. For example, Kosala, unlike most other cousins, knows that this is a trap. <laughs> a trap? The fucking mean. Um... I think it's more that I'm just I'm not that mean. Uh, I think it's a whole line in this book. I think it's about how Kosala has uh, drunk the poison tea, and thus, unlike other cousins, knows it when she sees it. Unlike other people, it's a general thing. Um, but I think it's more than that. More than just being a just being representative, right? It's it's trying to the text trying to position Greenpeace as an extant political force. Whereas everyone knows the cousins still exist, uh, but they don't remember that Greenpeace still exists. That's an interesting point. Um, I think that only works because of the sort of the established way that Mycroft does his drops into into dialogues, though. I think he does the dialogues things whenever he feels like it. Yeah, I couldn't see much of a pattern to those. Well, but how he labels people, I, I think, does have a bit... Like, utopians are sometimes utopia, and sometimes themselves, in like in this with the stage direction. And I think the distinction is when they're speaking in a way that is them, and when they're speaking in a way that is what they are. Maybe, um, I think it's... But I, I, I want to be careful with using what they are. Yeah, but I think I, I want to, like, emphasize that Mycroft is the one choosing to emphasize these things. Um, sure. Yeah. The way I interpreted this was that Mycroft, for some reason, saw Kosala as an individual during this conversation, but saw Greenpeace as a representative of their organization. Mm -hmm. um, but the theory I came to was that it was because Kosala had been in Madame's and that Kosala was acting in some way that was in accordance with the way that she would behave at Madame's because... Um, she recognized that the offer came from Dominic, um, and she knew that this was somehow influenced by Madame's in some way. So that was my theory on why Kosala got the individual label. Um, but uh, that is just a thought I had. 
So what the offer is, by the way, for the sake of... Actually, I don't think anyone isn't... hasn't... Now, people have told us to, to summarize anyway. So uh, Greenpeace, who were consumed into the Mitsubishis, like, not that long ago, 60 years-ish, mm-hmm. wants to give Kosala a whole bunch of land to build mm-hmm. cousiny stuff, hospitals, shelters, whatever, on the condition that they back their attempt to get nature reserves uh, declared as official peace zones by modifying the mm-hmm. second black law. Well, interpreting the second black law. Uh, I guess interpreting. I Whether laws, it's interpreting or modifying the, is a thing I want to get into, the, actually. The, lo- the laws need interpretation. Mm-hmm. They're so broad. I think... I, I think Greenpeace, which is how I will continue to refer to them, um, is technically playing politics well here. They see their opportunity. They're taking the opportunity. Um, Greenpeace, like everyone else playing politics right now, though, is sort of playing chicken with the world in a way that I think is maybe irresponsible. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a fair assessment. I, I don't think they're right that this will quell concerns. Uh, and I don't think they're right that they even need this for this upcoming war. I think the second Black Law, I went back and read the text, sufficiently explains this, that if it wasn't a a politics move, it wouldn't need to be done. Well, here's the thing, right? One could, in theory, um, one could, in theory, uh, store more materials in, like, in, like, t- uh, in, like, a nature reserve in such a way that even on their, on their destruction, uh, it doesn't, uh, designate a large, uh, loss of nature or, or a controlled loss of nature. Mm-hmm. So I think what's happening is that they're trying to preserve them even more than would be, uh, than is currently clear under the second law. Mm -hmm. I think that is true. Um, I don't think that it is necessary or necessary enough to justify this action. But again, I, I can't blame him too much. He's clearly sort of seeking out his, this is the thing he does is just exclusively defend nature, much like Cookie. I don't think he's making smart choices, but he is making the, like, politically understandable choices. He is refer- With this pitch. Hmm? He is Jyoti, uh, the Greenpeace director? Greenpeace. Yes, you referred yeah. to the director as he? <sighs> Should I have not? Mycroft, I believe, only ever refers to them as she. But, like, explicitly on the theory that, well, I refer to all the other Mitsubishi directors as a man, and she's different. So when they refer to her as she. That's yeah. I, I totally missed that line then. That was in To Like the Lightning. Um, in, but in, oh. <laughs> that was a long time ago for me. But when I was rereading this chapter, I noticed there's like a subtle undercurrent of um, femininity being associated with Greenpeace, um, which I didn't notice the first time I read it. So on page, um, what is that? One... Uh, 71, mm-hmm. um, there's a line that Kosala has drunk of Madame's poison and can recognize uh, its taste. And I was like, yeah. what is Madame's like about this proposal by Greenpeace? Um, it's, you know, it's like, as you said, it's like directly protecting Greenpeace's interests in exchange for making a deal with the cousins. It's, it didn't seem like it was very Madame's like. But then, 
When I was rereading the description of the Greenpeace Mitsubishi merger on page 169, um, this is my page numbers. I don't even know if yours is the same. I just wrote them down on my notes. Um, Mine are the same. There's this. Um, so as as we pointed out, into like the lightning, um, Mycroft has referred to the other Mitsubishi directors as all he, and as the to the Greenpeace director as she. And if you look at this description um, of the Greenpeace Mitsubishi merger, it's presented in terms that resemble like sort of like a courtship and a proposal and a marriage kind of thing. Um, at least to Fully me when I reread it. Very songs of songs language. Um, sweet curves of hills, dusky laps of mountains. Mm-hmm. Yes, that that's um, that's describing them in kind of traditionally feminine terms in, in the way that a man who is courting a woman in a traditional way would. And so I think um, Mycroft slash Madame's sees uh, Greenpeace as like the feminine side of the Mitsubishi. And so what Dominic, the ultimate man, the manliest man is doing is getting the woman side to work with the woman cousins to create, uh, I don't know, peace in some sense, because that's what women are supposed to do. Well, that went completely over my head, 100%. I missed it the first time. Uh, so did I, even now. It's clever. I interpreted that to be the politicking that was going on, because um, I actually referenced that same line about the poison like like two minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I also thought it was an important line, but I thought the takeaway was supposed to be that only someone who was trained by Madame would be putting forth this kind of a political deal. Like, I'll do this for you, but here's another, mm, not quite a condition, but you're going to do it. And that was the... That was the poison. I thought that was the element of poison that was being hinted at. I think um, politics is still, like, weird. And we've always seen politics. It's just as, like, complicated as politics nowadays, right? Politics nowadays. Mm-hmm. Maybe... All of those but things. I don't think it's as full of that sort of backroom dealing as it is now. That's not true. Well, that's not true specifically because of Madame. Everyone was astonished when it turned out that was true. Well, it's one thing if about if my if my representative if my if my MP is like um, making backroom deals. It's another thing if they're like sleeping with all. It's another thing if they're sleeping with all the other MPs. Right, right like. The brothel was more controversial than the actual backroom dealing part of it. Yeah. In fact, uh, Brody DeLupa... Was it? uh, ...even makes a defense of the fact that they were backroom dealing. He was like, this is a very stressful circumstance um, and all that. And it's like, um, the brothel was weird. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, the brothel was weird, but they needed some neutral place. He tried to present it as just backroom dealing as opposed to what it was... Uh, a family. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I thought we were supposed to be... I thought it was supposed to be surprising to the reader that people were more interested in the... All right, you, you know, you might, you might have me on this one. Okay. Okay, I, I want to mention a couple things. So... So do I, actually. Me too. Um, <laughs> so where do you... Oh, okay. This is going to be a long one. Gotcha. Why don't you two go first, and then I'll, I'll pull us back if I need to. Okay, so 167, Mycroft mentions Kosala, Ancelet, and the Senate as peacemakers. We haven't seen Ancelet do anything since the first chapter. 
Minecraft hasn't seen fit to tell us anything Minecraft until it's done since the first chapter. Well, they did do kind of the biggest thing, which was probably to freeze the Senate. Yeah. Hmm, that's true. Um, but he, he, he's described as being I agree, they've just sort of been gone. They were just kind of gone last in Two Like the Lightning, and a lot of Seven Surrenders too, though, because they were acting as someone else. If it turns out that some other character turns out to be Ansele also, I'm going to have a fit, I swear to God. <laughs> Everyone in the story is just Vivian Ansele in different costumes. <laughs> it's only three stuff. Yeah, if it comes to my intention that Quoraman is also Ansele, I will drop the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then... So the, 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 when describing what they could use the sites for... Uh, one of the options is POW camps. Um, so I'm, I am I tried to look this up. I went find this up, but then I, I didn't. Um, I don't think POW camps are usually run by third-party organizations. So I uh, I agree. So that would mean that this that implies that Greenpeace is like, well, maybe the cousins fight and need to store prisoners of war someplace. Or maybe I do think the cousins will probably have the nicest POW camps. And to be fair, that's like not a small thing. Uh in World War Two they were particularly rich. The Japanese were pretty bad. Uh the arguably the the Nazi division of war camps for the for the USSR uh soldiers constituted another genocide. It was very bad. Um Yes. The, Ar- arguably you could argue that the cousins were planning on fighting in the war and um you know, thus needing the POW camps. You could also argue, uh, but that seems unlikely to me, um, but you could also argue that the cousins are going to establish these POW camps and run them for the benefit of other groups who actually are fighting in the war. Um, yeah. That's I, weird, though, right? Yeah, I, 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 maybe, but I don't think there's, like, a lot of precedent for that. And even then, like, like who... This is, but to be fair, this is like how things are run, so far as we can tell, in this society, right? There's like, there's like almost all of the hospitals in Romanova are cousin hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not like they're all like taking equal chunks of the, of the society's pie, uh, society's infrastructure, infrastructure right. pie. Like at times, the hives seem more like departments of a government than separate countries. Like, it's like, okay, the Cousins do this, the Utopians do this, Gordian does this. Um, so th- this could be, like, a suggestion that they would be acting in this capacity as kind of, like, the ones who do the the uh, humane organization stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, and, you know, there's a very real sense to which the Hives are just departments of the government, despite what Mason may have to say about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mason has opinions about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So then... We also hear about lots of other hives. Oh yeah, the hive yes, mergers. This is where my my next note is. Mm-hmm. I thought Madame was younger. Ah, but it's not proper to give a lady's age. Joyce and Felix are siblings. Yeah, um you can I mean in certainly in this society you can have siblings pretty pretty far apart. That's fair. That's true. And so I just, I had, I had presumed since Madame was not noted as being elderly and all of our other old people are kind of called out for it, that she was 
that weird forever middle age that everyone else is. Right. Mycroft, the line I quoted, it's improper to give a lady's age is into like the lightning. Mycroft deliberately obscures how old she is. Oh, yeah. So I just assumed it wasn't interesting and moved on. Maybe not the right call on my part. Um, man, I'm going to have to like, when I read the flip book, I'm going to have to like watch myself for those things, aren't I? What things? For what things? Being wrong? <laughs> <laughs> but like, just deciding something is not important and just moving on and then forgetting it wasn't, wasn't important, right? Oh yeah, it's going to be bad. I'm going to like, ke- keep a notebook or something. You're not going to believe me about this, but most of the time, I'm actually a pretty okay reader. And uh, <laughs> this is what you're in for. Get ready. I've been living your <laughs> upcoming expectations for months. But I, I've been learning from you, I think. So, I mean, hopefully my, my entry is not so bad. <laughs> uh, well, I'll be paying so much closer attention to everything you say. Uh, likewise, I guess. Yeah, it's gonna, book four is going to be a real shift in tone for this podcast. <laughs> We've come so far with no discussion ever getting too out of hand, because I ultimately keep having to say... Oh, Christ, like, are you are you know more than me, I guess. I we'll keep talk about only this later. using the thing we had so far. I don't know why you don't believe me about that. I Because uh, I, I think it's important to give you room to lie to me about that if you need to. Hmm. Are you telling me that you don't need that space? No comment. Um, yeah, there, w- there it is. <laughs> so, uh... Well, I actually wanted to, to point out, not the, the reading piece bit, but the, um... Like the Olympians in the one big party, um, mm-hmm. Rainbow Bridge, Schools Without Borders, um, Volmond and IBN. I don't know what IBN is. Um, oh, I thought it was IBM. No. IBN, I don't know. I looked it yeah. up and mm-hmm. I didn't get anything meaningful as a... As a uh, I think it might be international something something. That seems like a fair guess, but we just don't know. I, I see IBN, I think International Baccalaureate. Hmm, that's interesting. Volamond was one that interested me because that's like French for fly world. Something I only know roots. Um, well, that's right. So to me, that suggests that there was some kind of French speaking, uh, maybe tourism organization along the lines of the other ones mentioned. And then it just eventually mm. merged into the EU, which might explain why the EU language is French. I mean, yeah. um, we don't know. That's what could um... be. There's a thing that happens historically where, like, France insists in any context when there's an official language that one of them has to be French. Mm. It's why one of the official... was why every um, UN general secretary has to speak English and also French. Because <laughs> the France will not... Uh, will, fr- will try to veto anyone who uh, doesn't speak French. It's very funny. Uh... And in the present-day EU, the two largest countries um, are France and Germany. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, in the Terra Ignota world, we see that um, the Brillists speak German as their language. So, um, and they're, like, somewhat German. So it makes sense that the EU kind of just, in addition to, like, France's already natural, you-have-to-speak-French tendencies... Um, it makes sense that the EU would gravitate towards France in the in the Terragona future. The working language for practicality in, in say in the um, European government currently is something like English. Um, 
France and German, and you cross out German because of the Burles, and you cross out English because it's a common language, you mm -hmm. get French. And not only that, but the capital of the EU is in Belgium, which French is one of their official languages, if I remember correctly. Oh, that's a whole thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, um, there's, there's like... Um, oh, do I want to say something about this? I'll just leave it as ethnic tensions. Yeah, yeah, it's a complicated situation. Oh, okay. Um, ethnic tensions, cool. Question, uh, how do the Mitsubishi determine the value of property? Market value, I think. Is it? Because they seem to care so much about land. What is a unit of property to the Mitsubishi? Well, I think uh, the there's, it's, it's clearly not like a Georgia's thing where they only care about the land itself. Mm -hmm. uh, they care about the land and also its improvements. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing with uh with the Green Peaks is that it was just so much land. Right. Right? Yeah, no, I'm I agree. I, I'm I'm moving slightly past the Green Peaks to when we discover that some land is worth more units of land to the Mitsubishi for shares than others. Right. That more, was and its market value isn't a very Mitsubishi way to determine that. That was why. That was What do you mean why? Sorry, we keep cutting you off. <laughs> that Sorry. was also into like the lightning. Um in the Mitsubishi Directorate conversation, they talk about that that you get like vote multipliers for like improving your property in some way. Um, mm -hmm. I forget the exact numbers, but you like you build a factory and it multiplies by some amount. Apartment multiplies by some amount, etc. Oh, so we just have been told this, and I forgot about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, never mind then. I want <laughs> to get back to like a previous topic, which was languages. Um, so mm -hmm. there's another language introduced in this chapter. Um, which is Hindi. Mm -hmm. And um, Hindi is one of many languages spoken in India, um, but it's the most, I think it has the most native speakers of any Indian language. So um, it's not even half the country that speaks Hindi, but it's more than any other language in India. Mm -hmm. um, it ends up being, uh, I'm not quite sure how they swung this, now that I know the things I know about India, but like the there's a, there's a similar split there's a split in India as there is in lots of countries between a a national and an official language and the national language is Hindi and the official language is English. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was unfamiliar with Hindi punctuation until I read this chapter the first time, um, and so when I got to the little vertical bars, I didn't read them as periods. At first, they they read like oh. a little sort of like gentle pause in my head. Like I literally imagined the characters trailing off the end of their sentences. Then eventually, I realized they were periods. But that initial impression stuck with me, so it made the whole conversation seem gentler, and that kind of fit with the characters' personalities as well. Um, so it, it was kind of interesting for that reason. Um, I thought those were blocking out the different language text. Uh, no. And in fact, that that doesn't make sense was one of my notes for this yeah, chapter. Yeah, the vertical bar. <laughs> I cannot tell <laughs> when they're speaking what. Yeah. There seems to be no rhyme or reason. The here. vertical bar is just a replacement for the period that indicates that they're speaking Hindi. So they start... Okay. So the, the Greenpeace Mitsubishi merger discussion is where they start speaking Hindi. Um, mm -hmm. With Kosala's question, do you think the Mitsubishi hive might split after that? And then they go on speaking Hindi, except for Hobbes, um, for the rest of the Kosala Greenpeace conversation. So here's what I thought happened. We get the paragraph that says Kosala switched to Hindi. 
And then Kusala in English says, Do you think the Mitsubishi Hive might split? Greenpeace in English. No, but there's been discussion. Now in Hindi. People will be more comfortable oh. to clear that if things do turn sour. And then at the end, flip back to English. The land grab isn't Greenpeace's policy after all. That's the thing Kusala's people... name is now in Hindi. As she says, <laughs> our profit is being offered. And it was just... <laughs> It uh, wasn't helping me. To be fair, this is how people often who who, who, who are fluent in two languages speak. That's true. Um, even oh, let me expose my let me go linguistic knowledge again. Uh, I talked in another episode about about uh, Hindi and Urdu being uh, in some senses basically the same uh, the same language, especially the identical languages in the marketplace. So if you look at a marketplace in Hindi and a marketplace in Urdu, they sound the same. You can easily communicate about them with 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 either. Um, but when they move beyond the language of the market, when they talk talking about more abstract ideas, the, the languages they they go back to borrow words from are different. For Hindi, it's Sanskrit. For Urdu, it's Persian, and then also Arabic by way of Persia. Um, where there's like another choice you could make in the paper I read this on, which points out you other common choices you could go to English, uh, which is also very common in 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 languages where. Um, I think I've personally seen this where people who speak fluently a language but don't know lots of technical terms in it for various things, so they go to English for these technical terms. I think it's also a thing in, in Egyptian Arabic, um, in Syrian Arabic, they go to the French for technical terms. And so one question I would have for the for the thing that speaking is, um, is it Hindi in the sense that it's 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 um, Hindi Urdu with with the backup of Sanskrit, or is it like Hindi Urdu with a backup of English? Mm. So especially nowadays, uh, there's 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 um, religious tensions in in <laughs> right Hindi. ethnic tensions, as I understand. Uh, I, I would say religious, but they're not separate. <laughs> okay, so we're all right. Well, be careful about what we what we leave in there. You didn't say anything controversial, did you? I'm remembering now we had this talk on like episode two of the podcast. We did. And you were very concerned. Um, because I was going to say some. If I saw, I almost gave a history of the of the India Pakistan conflict, and I thought, man, I shouldn't do that. I don't know enough to do that. Oh, <sighs> um, and so I didn't. Maybe. Uh, you said uh, I should wait until we have more listeners. Um. We do have more listeners. We're, that's true. Um, we're also, I'm going to, next time, because I'm looking at the time, oh, yeah. mm -hmm. and we're like two pages in the <laughs> yeah. Did, Um What was your next note from chapter 10? My next note is, Tully is a criminal. What did Tully do? Well, you know what Tully did. Um, is this the, the thing with, with Mason? No, this is still in chapter 10. There's a line, I wrote down criminals like Tully. The Mason thing um, is in chapter 10. No, the Mason. No, there are multiple Mason things. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, what are you talking about? Where, where, what are you? Oh, no, I want to know what you're talking about. Overstep my boundaries. There's a lot of Mason stuff in chapter 11. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. I don't know how much Mason stuff there is in chapter 10. There's that whole discussion with uh, Dominic. Mm hmm. That's not a Mason discussion. Yes, yeah. it is, Cornell that's Mason. It's a Martin discussion. No, Cornell Mason is literally talking to Dominic. All caps Mason. I need to erase a note I made, which is, Martin seems great this chapter. Uh, <laughs> hang on. Okay. Um, 
Yeah, I thought that was. I thought Martin was still talking for that entire thing, because oh, Martin God. started the conversation. Oops. Um, maybe I'm not good at reading. You know, it's these books are confusing. This is piling up against me. So no, where did they uh, say that... someone says something to the effect of criminals like Tully Marty and um, one seventy one. Uh, creating peace zones and by extension war zones will show people that not only the wackos and criminals like Tully Marty are taking the danger seriously. Uh, yes, the Greenpeace director you. says I'm it. I'm sorry I couldn't find that. I'm pretty sure Tully Marty escaped from jail. <sighs> Why were they in jail? Uh, Papa wanted them in jail. For inciting a riot? Yeah, but it wasn't really a riot until the murder. Right. Yeah, it's very flimsy charges. Mm-hmm. Tully's body has done legally nothing wrong, but they're fully willing to, like, throw the book at him. Right. And, uh, Sniper, I think Sniper mm-hmm. was, was the one who broke Tully out of jail. Mm-hmm. So maybe, like, conspiracy oh, or something? that's right! Because they shot Julia. Right. Yeah. While they were picking up Tully. No. Okay. No? No. Tully, after Julia was shot, Dominic tackled, um, Sniper into the river and, like, fucking torn to pieces behind him as a doll. Later, Sniper t- broke Tully out of jail. Okay, so two snipers were... Yeah, there's fully independently three, three snipers running around at, at some point. <laughs> three that we know of. Three that we know of. Uh, the others okay. are just Vivian Ancelay. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Um, there, there probably is an extra sniper somewhere. Because we keep hearing about how the toys are unaliving... I don't want to say dying, because I don't know if it counts slower than they should be. How does this um, not count as dying? What do, you, what do you think dying is? Oh, boy. I think dying is the process which occurs at the end of life. <laughs> so, um, is unaliving the... Is Bridget going to come back and realive them? I don't want to imply that... Maybe see, I, I don't want to use dying because I don't want to suggest that like something is happening to them. Something I don't think this is is happening necessarily. To them. But it's not like they got old and their organs failed. Um no, like they're the, the miracle that sustained their life is no longer coming back to refresh them. Yeah, so I don't I think it's still a thing happening to them. Yeah. But what is it that's happening to them? <laughs> the absence of a mar- miracle. The uh, yeah, they're unmiracling. Would you prefer that? That's a kind of death. To the extent that they are alive, I suppose they're dying. They they are alive. They believe in stuff. I guess they are. Al- I guess they're alive. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Um. Yeah. I guess they are alive. So yeah. so dying is probably appropriate. Yeah. I've been in my head, sort of thinking them as a a different, as a as some sort of third thing that that isn't quite alive and isn't quite dead. That could be, I don't know, but I guess that's unnecessary. That. Schrodinger's soldiers. Mm-hmm. I said Schrodinger's soldiers. Schrodinger's soldiers. Well, looking at them isn't the thing that. In any case, <laughs> there, there probably is a third sniper going to surprise us later on. Um, Tully's a criminal. Okay, that makes sense. We hear about Mycroft in the Sanctum Sanctorum and his visitors. He's visited by, yeah, and um, much like Apollo. Mention, before we yeah. we've asked too far, I just want to say I, I noticed on this line. When they described Greenpeace, when the Greenpeace, they described them as shepherds, farmers, shepherds, and sea herds. I don't know what a sea herd is, but it's a thing that's a thing in uh, in this world. Probably like a shepherd, but for fish. I guess they, or for 
the tides? Are we are we playing with the tides now? Or manatees? Manatees are like sea cows. Manatees are so cute. That'd be interesting. No, they're not. What? <laughs> what you... Yeah, they're, they're they're not. They're called sea cows, though. So it would make sense for someone who herded manatees to be a sea herd. I like yeah, it. Yes, they are called sea cows. They're also cute. They're not cute. Very cute. <laughs> <laughs> they look like big rotten potatoes covered in algae. Look like big cuddly potatoes covered in algae. Have you ever seen a manatee? Yeah. I don't know where you're getting this impression. <laughs> I mean, didn't some group of explorers literally mistake manatees for mermaids? I remember reading that. I think it was um But they were one of the early they were of Florida. Critically disappointed in the reality of those mermaids. Well, yes. Uh, there's some fundamental differences between a human with a fish bottom half and a manatee. Um, would you would you accept manatees are basically like the pugs of dolphins? Yeah, pugs are cute. Great. No, uh, uh, no hang on. Again, a pug <laughs> is like the sack a dog used to be. Like, um, it's probably bad that they exist in some sense, because the way we get them is by like inbreeding these like poor dogs over and over again and they have like till they have medical issues but they're real cute okay so uh, visitors mycroft continues his decline um we get a little more characterization for the martys here that we haven't particularly so far i don't think they're actually visiting him because for them to actually be visiting him uh a lot of stuff would need to change <laughs> Or I guess Bridger goes and makes some of them, and then Mycroft didn't think this was important enough to tell. Which is unlikely, given that um, what, the reason why Mycroft didn't want Bridger to make uh, Apollo again because Apollo because Mycroft would have to kill him. Would he still? No, because it's now just a war and he can't change anything. If no, I still don't like that idea. Um... Yeah, it's very unlikely Bridger went and made all of the Martys who are now hanging out with Mycroft, and no one, including Martin, comments on that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Even if it is exactly what the Emperor would do if he was given access to Bridger. (laughs) So he continues his decline. Um, Mm -hmm. We get the conversation between them and Papa. Does anyone have something on that? I just... Oh... Yeah. No, you go. So, the 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 Mitsubishi give everything to Papa. Papa calls them specifically candid. I also want to note, the Mitsubishi are the are the only hive to not censor this text. True. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Maybe that's Dominic doing his Dominic thing. I think it is. I think it is Dominic saying, "Well, as as as, as sort of, I don't know, doing a Dominic thing." So then, um... Well, it's what it's what Jehovah would want. Yeah. Right, because Jehovah values the truth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And while he's not necessarily a good follower, I think I think he does, strictly speaking, mostly obey. Mm-hmm. We find out Detroit still exists. Where? Who? Where? On 73. Um, no one's saying they have to give up ancient land. They could sell in Detroit, Dubai, Manchester, Naples, Halifax. They're half for Athens. Oh, that's right. Halifax made me paranoid about that list. Because um, the thing Halifax is the best known for is the largest pre-nuclear explosion. Uh, and just, like, given what's going on here, <laughs> that felt appropriate. 
but I I don't think um I don't think those other places are known for that. And further context doesn't make it seem like he's just naming famously exploded places. Yeah, Naples right. is still around. Naples, I didn't realize this until very recently. Is this right next to Vesuvius? <laughs> it's just right there. Is it really? Yeah, you can see Vesuvius from Naples. Huh. It's very close, disturbingly close. It surrounds the city. It's it sounds like it's a problem because it's gonna erupt at some point again. I think Halifax is the first Canadian city that comes up in this book. To my knowledge, I think yes. Toronto has come up before. We got Toronto. I think so. It might have been oh, in one of the little riot descriptions as one of the cities casually mentioned. Um, let's see. On the bottom of 173, there's a passage that I really like. Um, <laughs> the one about the ancient bronze smith. Um, just beautiful writing. Um, just as the ancient bronze smith leaves no fingerprint on our towers of steel, so today's great achievements will someday be invisible within the great machines that are to us the future and to distant generations trash. Yet after a million sunsets, there will still be acres, dirt, and dawn. I just really liked that. It's really um, nice. I th- yeah, a lot of a lot of this book is nice though. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a well-written book. And it also it also explains <laughs> spoiled for beauty. <laughs> it also explains that Mycroft is looking at the Mitsubishi's point of view and is able to express it in a really good way. Um, so it shows that he's not only um, you know capable of you know expressing his own emotions but also like getting into um, like he really does have some kind of resemblance with almost every other hive. And in the in the next chapter, they talk about how he, you know, really wanted to make himself part of every hive in a way before he committed his crimes. Uh, oh, I so strongly disagree with you, but we can't get into it yet. No, no. Um, so the other thing we get is uh, actually where we we backed up a little bit. No, I'm I'm just going to keep moving forward. We because mm-hmm. the next chapter is going to be the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I do want to mention... we need to go back to doing one chapter a week because it's. Every second chapter we talk about does not get the attention it often deserves. Uh, yeah. The Utopians are doing something we do not know about. So the world is really, really badly falling apart. The Utopians are doing something we don't know about. And I think the Utopians are going to leave. Ooh. Um, we get a line from Mycroft that I'm looking for now. Oh, did I write this down because I remembered it from the next chapter? I might have. Okay. I might need to talk about this. When do we get the section about the Utopians being compared to fairies and King Arthur? That's in the next That's chapter. Next chapter. Yeah. Okay. Then I I just caught the thing about the Utopians having a bunch going on with these riots that Mycroft isn't telling us, and it was in my reread that I took the notes. Mm, okay. That's when I put together my theory that there's not going to be Utopians soon, because um, he talks about them in the past tense mm-hmm. to the future reader, mm. unlike the other hives, who he's always saying. Yeah, you might still have Masons, but the Utopians, he's like, no, your ancestors walked with the Utopians. Uh, And that feels important. We get Martin, and then it turns out Mason, and I was wrong about a lot of the things I Mm -hmm. said. In fact, I attributed a great Mason quote to Martin, and then I wrote down, wow, Martin's great this chapter. What is the quote? (laughs) Uh, Romanova is a mere alliance, either represents the laws of its members, or it means nothing. Alliances come and go. Yeah, that's nice that's uh, Cornell Mason for you. <sighs> Look at you go, Martin. You're really picking up on this. You're doing a great job. <laughs> well, it, it, it should be noted that the alliance justifies itself not... Like, it does declare it has universal competency to enforce 
the Black Laws. That's true. Um, but the thing, I'm much less impressed at Martin for so perfectly representing Mason. Mason when I discover that it was just actually, actually Mason talking. One way that you, <laughs> another way that you could have told that is that Dominic refers to him as Votre Majesté, which is probably incorrect French pronunciation, but it means Your Majesty. Yeah. I I just thought that was um, intended to be offensive. Like, this was a, <laughs> like a, oh, you think you're so fancy, do you? Um, <laughs> That's his first line. His first line is, thank you for taking my call, votre majesté imperial. It's like, hey, they're taking a call. Fuck you. Yes, you, that doesn't read as 100% Dominic to you. That's fair. To be fair, Mason is being offensive. It was a great character moment. To be fair, Mason is being offensive to Dominic um, by calling him a dog. No, that's just, that's just Dominic's thing. It is Dominic's thing. Yeah. And, and Mycroft even calls it out as just being Dominic's thing. That's true. There's like... So, we get... so yeah, that was... This one's on me. I was going to talk about how incredible Martin managed to be, <laughs> but it's just the Emperor being great, and we all knew the Emperor was great. Yes. I can't keep just talking about how great we the Emperor We all knew is. that, yes. Mm, sure. Um, so then we see... There's a brief bit about Jad's different titles... We've seen a bit of his titles before, but every title except for uh Wei he mentions is like s- something about master or lord or emperor. Tycoon is close to, to greatness, which is um a thing about how they can't both the Tycoon about and his Zha relationship Hei Wei, with Ando. Yeah, yeah both of them are, are trying to talk around um well, Tycoon is just close to the Emperor. Zhao Wei is trying to talk around the notion of Emperor. Um, Alteza is Spanish for highness. Zumetra mm-hmm. is young master. Mamatra, my master. Montagneur, my lord. Uh, Dominus is lord again. Um, Anox is also lord. Uh, but we've seen other ways to refer to, to Jad. Namely, Jad, J-E-D-D, T-M, mm-hmm. which aren't so reverential. So I think it's interesting that, them, that Minecraft only pulls the referential titles here. And then we also well, hear but they're also mm-hmm. the personal titles. These are all these are all of the ones that like people who are close to him uniquely call him. Everyone uses J E D D. Whoever wants uses Jed. Like that. These, these are, are all called ones. out. Spaniards use Alteza. Any servant uses John. Mac and it specifically says any Mitsubishi can use Tycoon those are or noted, Those are noted specifically to point out the difference between that type of title and then here are the personal titles I'm talking about. Like, if you read the whole paragraph, that's what it's about. Yes, but they all, they all, even the ones that are, are supposed to, like, like say, well, these are the ones that are, anyone could see the ones that are special, they all are reverential. Spanish is Alteza, Highness. Uh, the Mitsubishi is Tycoon, close to the Emperor. Uh, Zhe Wang, which, uh, actually, it's just like a pet name but um so i understand the point right is to, to contrast these two different kinds of titles but all the titles uses examples are reverential hmm. except for it is very mycroft it is very mycroft so i also want to talk re- briefly about i wanted to talk briefly about jack mohan uh, as a title but it turns out jack mohan is a name like fully a regular name mm-hmm. uh, in india and so whenever i'm trying to look it up uh, I, first of all, I don't speak Hindi, so I can't look up like any actual 
uh, text in it. All that comes up is like baby name sites talking about the baby, the special number for Jack Mohan. I think it means very annoying. One who attracts the world or something like that. I found that, but it was also like on a baby name site. I don't know. It's better than nothing. Well, you might want to call your baby that. And I think it applies to Jed. Like, yeah, and I think it might be like I'm trying to figure out where it comes from too. Mm-hmm. I think there might be some scriptural basis for it, but I, I don't know that much about it, and it's a tangential point. So, okay. So, was there anything else in chapter ten? Yes, uh, Dominic's politicking works, and he gets what he wanted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And now chapter eleven. Mm-hmm. We're only two hours in. So, p- plenty of time. Yeah. Uh, uh, one and a half hours, because I was so late. I'm sorry about that again. Uh, <laughs> that's true. Uh, apology accepted. So, Je- Jehovah is going to Hobbstown to take a meeting about whether or not he can still represent them. And mm-hmm. Speaking of time, uh, I, would, yeah. I would like to point out that this chapter takes place on May 1st, uh, which is two weeks after... Uh, the previous chapter, huh. which took place on April 15th. And the note from Natakari is sent on the 17th of April um, to get Jed to attend the meeting, which takes place on the 1st. Um, so there's this whole two-week period where we're not quite sure what happens. Um, but this is the next event that Mycroft thought was significant. I oh. think what happens is mostly rioting and Mycroft writing his history. We don't... Oh, okay, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. We have pretty solid cause to think that. Yeah. And events of May 1st, when did he start writing this book again? July. July 6th. And this chapter was written on August 4th or 5th. So we're getting... We're, we're pretty... We're approaching you, the oh. events that occurred when he started this book. Mm-hmm. Did anything happen on July uh, 6th? Like historically? The 6th of July. Mm, that's not helpful. <laughs> Two days after July first we, was um, Confederation Day. July sixth is July fourth is is American Independence Day. Independence, yeah. Is that Bastille Day? No, that's the seventeenth, right? Let me check. No, it's the fourteenth. So anyway, uh, Jehovah goes to to Hobbs Town. We get a little bit about them. Hobbs mm-hmm. is really excited about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hobbs is mostly in character. Mm-hmm. I know certain people here are big fans of the Black Laws, so this is their chance to talk about that. Oh, it's me. Uh, yes, Black Laws are great. Um, I will be honest. Uh, what convinced me to be a Black Law is not so much the text of, of, of how they appear in the book, um, but I think it's the best way to express my values in the world of Terragnata. Um, but the Black Laws are pretty great. Let's that's, that's not beat around the bush here. Yeah, they're pretty good. They're in they're in they're in the top half of the hives we've seen. How, I think that's technically not a hive, but if you want to say organization, it's fine. Um, no, I'm gonna also say not hive. An organization. Uh, uh, fine. They if if they're setting up their own tiny cities with their own overarching government structure, minimalist. Yeah, Hobstown doesn't have a government structure. Government structure. <laughs> This chapter is about their government structure. No, so it's yes, about they do. a single institution which people probably should go to if they're going to start a feud. Like, they can just not. They're free. They are black law. They are kind of technically free, but by the time you're carving eight customs into a door, 
you have a structure. Yes, but there's no legal system of prosecution for violating those customs. There's not a legal structure. And also, there's just, like, a couple institutions um, about how to, like, how you should probably act. If everyone agrees to go and decide whether or not you did something at the courthouse in the middle of town, whether or not you call it a legal system is less relevant to me. Is there a courthouse? It's wherever they're holding the meeting. That's where they... It's clearly a courthouse. It's not a courthouse. You could call it the equivalent of a courthouse. There is a stage. There is a viewing gallery. There... It's a courthouse. <laughs> Can't fucking have uh, a discussion chamber without you calling it a courthouse? Yeah, it could be a church. Not if you decide. <laughs> Do you think it's a church? No, because churches are legal. But I'm just pointing out that there are other types of discussion houses. If it's where everyone goes to decide what everyone else is going to do. I Look, I agree. If I asked one of these black laws, is that the courthouse, they would say no. But it's the courthouse. And they even mention a gavel during the chapter. It's just a town hall. It's just a place they talk about stuff. You can talk about stuff oh, without spe- Oh, yeah, that's true. being a law. It is called the town hall. That's true. Okay. I'm, I'm wildly skeptical. But fine. This isn't even... Sometimes, uh, I'll admit, sometimes some self-called anarchists decide to like, build up a pseudo-government inside of their supposed u- utopia with like, oh, the city town will control everything through democracy. But no, these people don't have laws. They don't have a court system. They just have a place people talk sometimes and a person you should talk to before you link somebody. And the symbol of the rumor monger is the pen, which means that for Black Laws, the pen truly is mightier than the sword. <laughs> That's a pretty nice line. It's a pretty nice thing. Detail. This is for every intent and purpose, a tiny subgovernment. Like, the not. fact that they're allergic to the word government does not at all influence it is my not, read of this. It, it does not uh, have... I don't know. It doesn't have laws. It doesn't have a it does, though. system. What? Th- I'm sorry. They call them customs. But everyone murders you if you violate them. How, how's that? No, they're customs it's because the sometimes customs you can violate them house. And it's fine. Well, is it? Yeah. It's enforced. They describe Hobbstown's eight customs as enforced by mob retribution. <laughs> but if you convince a mob to be on your side, you can fucking do whatever. And crowned here by the Black Law's brave commandment. Yeah, okay. Not Minecraft is very though. into That's the idea cool. of these being, like, the the Hobbes laws of, of pure reason. Yeah, Hobbes is natural um, laws. They're not, they're just things that they really should probably tell people before they come into the, come into town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree, they're things they should tell people before they come into town. One thing I do like in this chapter is that we get there are some people who still use smartphones, because I think the yes is creepy. Uh, yeah. That was great. Pocket screens like our feral ancestors. For them. <laughs> I also like how Mycroft calls them, uh, they, they face life trackless like our feral ancestors. That's us. We're the people who go trackless. Mycroft is again compressing the past into one uniform period of, of, of before us. And he's right. Um, I, my phone died the other day while I was having a sandwich. Uh, and I wasn't at my house. Mm-hmm. And... I was somewhat uncomfortable. I don't know what I thought was going to happen, that I would so urgently need to answer an email right then, but there was a solid 20 minutes there where I was just a little bit on edge. 
<laughs> Until I got home and plugged my phone in, and nobody from work emailed me. But they could have. Uh, so they show up with Jehovah. This is where the thing happened that I'm, I'm sure the Utopians are leaving. He says, um... No matter how grim this war becomes, even if our sins drive all Utopians into hiding, if I go weeks without seeing them, years, yet to our dying day, we who saw them even once will still believe they might appear again, like wishes out of nothing at our time of need. You must believe in them too, reader. Your ancestors walked this earth when they did, saw them, touched them, passed down whispers. Perhaps a thousand years have passed since any glimpsed them, but a thousand years cannot erase the hope that fairies might return if our belief and need are great enough or Lost King Arthur, or Utopia. Utopians are going away. Okay. Maybe it's to Mars, maybe it is farther than to Mars. But um, I guess maybe they just all die, too. That It is a war. Super possible. But well, one way you, or another... Would you say it was likely that the Utopians would die in a war? They can't all die. That's too many people. They can totally all die. People die all the time. It's 4% of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's too many people. No, it's not. What do, what do you mean, no, it's not? A hundred... Four percent of the people could die. There's no... There is no... There's no God preventing it. There's no God preventing it. But, like, if four percent... You manage to kill four percent of the, of the world's population, things are going so fucking badly. Uh, fully... I think more than four percent of the world's population will die in the upcoming war. Oh, I don't. I'm not even impressed by it. I'm thinking... 2550 if not more and for the record you both said there was no god preventing it but bridger exists or existed so it's possible bridger helped helped make there be a war yep through his inaction and then also his actions <laughs> just all the way <laughs> so anyway um also i wondered who mycroft's old sensei was he does this whole thing while they're discussing I'm going to continue moving through this at mm-hmm. a bit of a pace. Mm-hmm. Well, he's talking about how he couldn't even replicate the questions asked of Jehovah because they were like the questions asked of him. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about this part, by the way, from your comment earlier. Um, when he's listing the people who asked him, he includes a bunch of names. So, uh, Delta Comps, our feelings won't be heard young because Sensayer asks, Mason asks, Hiveless Utopian, the Martys ask, who was his Sensayer? Was it Julia? Or did Julia pick him up when he turned out to be interesting? I think the latter. How much old, how old is Julia? Vague, indefinite middle age, I presume. But like, if Julia's like a little bit older than Carlisle, then Julia's like a child when this is happening. Mycroft isn't that old. No, but Carlisle's younger than them. I guess that's true. Um, I thought, I have assumed Julia was closer to Mycroft's age. Uh, Even then, Mycroft is like 17 when he does it. My- That's true. So it probably wasn't Julia. He must have some other sensei Well, Julia could also and- end up being like Ando's age or something. She could. But if Mycroft had another sensei mm-hmm. like, do you think they got fired? <laughs> <laughs> no, po- probably not, right? Okay, but in that case... Do you think they should have been fired? Because, like, <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> but that's specifically not, like, their job, right? Right. No one expects them to do that. Right. It's a whole thing when, when Kalal does it. Right. The, jo- the job of a sensei <laughs> is to talk about your spiritual beliefs, not like, hey, are you planning to kill anyone? 
attending to the police. But but his sensei are probably read the Cannerist philosophy he was writing, right? I disagree. I think I think the Cannerist philosophy wasn't necessarily even published until like later or like at the same time as his rampage was actually going on. I bet he only just like talked about the cynics and how they were great. And um not about how he should kill everybody. Yeah. So okay, you don't think he talked about the murder a lot. Mm-hmm. Um I agree they probably didn't talk about the murder. I also agree that his sensei or at the time should probably feel bad about not noticing. What would they have done? Tell somebody? The thing you no, condemn. No, just been really persuasive. Uh, okay, so okay. my read of this section was that the problem with Mycroft choosing a hive is that if he chose a hive, the hive could be blamed for his actions. True. He needed to be not hiveless or unhived, but a miner who could have been anyone when he did his crime, or the crime wouldn't work. Yeah. Right. Um, and in order to uh, get the crime to work, he, like, learned all these languages. He, like, made it seem like he was part of all these other hives a little at a time. Mm-hmm. And um, when he was, like, when he, like, knew enough and he was trusted enough, then he finally did it. Well, that's it's part of it, right? He, he, had, he had to make it convincing that... If it was very obvious it was going to be Utopian, right? Then the, the crime wouldn't have worked. Everyone would still blame Utopia because it's like, well, he didn't choose yet, but it's going to be Utopian, obviously. Uh, so he had to not be obviously any hive. Um, but he also wanted to get close to people. So he had to learn the hive languages, which meant he learned lots of people, everyone's language, and was a little bit of everyone, I think. I think these, these things can coexist. Uh, yeah, and I think it was fundamental to his, his idea working. Which, which it didn't. Um, Another note about this. And then I have sort of a... Yeah, go. Uh, Mycroft postponed his hive choice. The only other two people that we know have done this are Jed and Cookie. So that's... Uh... Good company. <laughs> it, it's, it's very mixed company. Um, I, I, I was under the impression that it wasn't all that unusual until this chapter. Um, and even reading this chapter, I think it would be more understandable if not for how great Mycroft was. Yeah, I think it was the fact that Mycroft was like seen as an up and coming political force, and like Martin only delayed their their uh, adult competency exam for the sake of wanting to have a more productive debate life. Um, you have debate. Ah, oh, way to go, Martin. <laughs> and. Upon realizing he could do it forever, he immediately took it and passed it and like did, did the thing. So the other thing that I want to get into here is that I think Jehovah's answers to these questions um, more or less vindicate the position I took last week about Jehovah taking over all of the other hives. Which Whether that's good news what? or bad news for me remains to be seen. He refused to say anything. He said pretty clearly that he wasn't like, uh, he. I think he was pretty clear here that he's not going out to take over all of the hives, but that all of the hives seem like they may to put him in power. Yeah. Yeah. Independent of what else is going on. So, you know, that seems promising. Uh, well, we, we learned lots of things about that. So let's, before we get to that, let me, I have generation to do. Okay, so the first time Jed slips a lot, um, 
Oh, I forgot to look up Tajik. Uh, 187? Yeah, 187. Uh, apologies for my terrible German translation. Uh, so when you type that into Google Translate, it says, I will take the exam. It turns out German negates by just adding Nick to the end of things. At the end, right. So I'm pretty sure it's I will not take... Hmm? Right, it adds the not at the end. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so he's just like interrupted before he can finish the sentence. Mm-hmm. Which means that the translation given is like fine. And what about the next one? It's Greek, I think. Guidus. Is it no one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm a little on the lookout for Jehovah lying, but um, <laughs> so far I haven't caught it a second time. So then we have. Oh, then we have no one has perfect knowledge when he's asked if Sniper is wrong, which is specifically evasive, but. <laughs> Fine. I'm I'm more or less on board for what he's getting at there. And then we have um Antuis, Mitsubishi no Land Majority in Nitakoi, Popular in Majoritas Masonica. Most Latin. Uh No is the uh, I looked it up and it's a Japanese genitive marker. Didn't know Japanese had genitive case, didn't know Japanese had cases. So I'm sort of doubtful that that's how quite what it is. But it's possessive. Uh Unto est, I'm what is? To, no, in that sentence. So Mitsubishi, no. You know, uh, Harrell told us about this. It, it's 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 a whole other word that means a thousand things, but it, but more or less boils down to this is like the thing that the other stuff I'm saying is related to. No, it's a different word. I think that was knee. Sure I think word? that was knee. Yeah. No, it's possessive. The text Damn, says right. it's possessive. It yep. All right. Uh, so unto est, uh, Jehovah does this before he contracts Latin. I don't know if this is like a normal thing that happens. I think it might be. But he contacts Latin. Uh, so this is, this is, it is untrue. Interquay uh, uh, is and. Quay is and as we talked about before. So it's Mitsubishi no land majority. So Mitsubishi's land majority, which is Japanese and, and English. And and, translated, Anita Populae Mioritas Masonica. As a side note, Mioritas, it turns out, is medieval Latin. So that's fun. Um, so Latin, Jed is fully using the entire, entire history of Latin at his, at his disposal. And he uses Japanese to talk about the Mitsubishi and Latin to talk about the Masons. Oh, yeah. It's very good. Uh, so, and then, and, uh, he translates as the Masonic near majority population. <laughs> Nita means approaching. Uh. There's a sense of impending in there, which is not great. Um... I'm okay. Yeah, I don't know the subtlety enough of this to to say. I think you could read approaching majority charitably to not mean that it's impending, just that you're almost there. Yeah, but 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 Jed could just use near in English word freely because he freely just mixes and matches languages constantly. So he could have used something that didn't mean impending, but he didn't. He used something that meant impending. Maybe. I don't know why it's a maybe. That's like fully constant thing you know about Jehovah. I don't know. You're a lot more skeptical of everything that Jehovah does than I am. What? This is not even like an accusation of Jehovah. I think Jehovah thinks it's going that might soon be a Mitsubishi, uh, sorry, a Masonic uh, population majority. That might. I don't know. You you plausibly know more about the languages that you have taken time to translate than I do. Uh, I Based don't purely German. on this description I... that you've just given me of mm-hmm. what that word means, uh, 
the translation given in the book seems totally fine and well within the bounds of well it is well within the bounds of things um but it is a translation and it does obscure the things so the translations um of the verb it ended up being a verb um is no it ended up being a noun um was it why okay, would so you this... expect jehovah to expect an upcoming masonic majority when they're in the middle of reforming the cousins sort of ostensibly to avoid the Masonic majority, if you think this is, like, a an impending emergency. Well, I don't know if Jehovah cares. Um, so... Well, he cared enough to stay up late and write a new constitution. Well, he cared about the cousins, not because he, like, thought they wouldn't combine. I don't but think that... But Jehovah has Do you think he thinks the constitution will fail? I think Jehovah fully has demonstrated that he does not really care about the fundamental legal principles and most important laws of his society uh and like fully forgets them forgets them constantly i think the 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 idea of of uh, of the absence of a majority is subtle enough that he just fully wouldn't get it he just doesn't it was plain to him once and then just never got it again right um like he can analyze the situation and see that there's a majority coming but he doesn't necessarily view this as something that shouldn't be mentioned or that is a problem yeah. Hang on. What laws is he constantly forgetting about? The first, the law. first law. Okay. Well, hang on. We just talked about this. The stuff that he said, not outside the bounds of the first law. Yeah, but he forgot that too. <laughs> he just forgot it was a thing. Oh, I forgot. I forgot that it was doing something illegal. Oh, I guess that it was legal in the first. Pl- was legal in the first place. He just fully is not cognizant of like the surrounding ideas behind of this thing. I just reread that chunk of that chapter. Are you sure? Pretty sure. At the very least, he has a very different interpretation of the first law than everyone else does. Well, he just, he just says, he says I, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I'll be more careful. And then chapters later, Ando's was like, no, actually, he was totally in the, in the right there. Yeah, it almost seems like Ando like, defending him retroactively. <laughs> yeah, because like, he forgot to defend himself there. I think, I've, I, think I have it here. Um, Carlisle is crying again. What? You can't just say things like That's that not crying. in front of people. He wasn't crying. He cried out. That drove Carlisle to his feet. You can't, he cried. Y- yeah. It's not... He's not weeping. Perhaps he's not weeping. I don't know why you'd assume he's weeping. <laughs> it's the first sentence I read. It just felt plausible <laughs> to me. I looked for the words you can't because I knew they were used in this conversation. Um... <laughs> Okay, that's pretty good. He does not apologize for forgetting the first law. What does he say? I think you are referring to the line, I apologize, Member Sunir, for this mismatch in the radii of our consequentialisms. Or are you referring to later when he's talking to Carlyle as they leave the room? Before that. Like, what is the mismatch in the radii of consequentialisms? What does Uh, Arthur say? Hang on, let me go back. Oh no, I've lost the you can't. That was my, my anchor for this entire Let me thing. Let get my Hang book. On. One second. It's page 225. But I misunderstand. By can't, you did not question the possibility of my words. You meant I should not say such things under local human law. 
You are correct, I erred. I thought only to diminish present pain, but I concede and recognize the laws and master of this house are not wrong to rank duty over pity. I apologize, Member Sunir, for this mismatch in the radio of our consequentialisms. Yeah, that's an apology. <laughs> specifically for breaking, for breaking the first law. Specifically for breaking, for breaking the first some law. humanist law. For breaking some humanist law. He doesn't say humanist. The first, law. the first law is not a humanist law. They have. They can enforce it. Everybody can they can't enforce it. I'm I'm looking back to see if anyone but Carlisle complained about it. He doesn't say humanist law. He says human law. And Jed doesn't consider himself to be human. But human is how we refer to humanists. And he's in a humanist compound with he its also, own special human laws. Yeah, but he also, like, is how humans how we refer to humans, too. So, like... Why can't... Why... Oh, why couldn't these books have just picked a word for a thing? <laughs> <laughs> Not only that, but if humanist is considered synonymous with, like, um, atheist or agnostic, then you could even consider the first law to be a humanist law. <laughs> okay, so, um, does anybody... I'm pretty sure it bans proselytizing atheism, too. Oh, that's true. It bans proselytizing atheism. Yeah. I touched this for you, can't, and it just didn't work. So let me try... Yeah, no, it, it would be. Um, the first law is a bad law that shouldn't have been written. Anyway, uh, hey, you know what's occurring to me? Is we're long into yeah. this and we haven't even gotten to the... I'm at like two hours. Stuff. Yeah, we, there's yeah. there's some more, but I think we can handle it. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're well on track. Way more on track than usual. Okay, let's try our best then. So, other things happen. Um, Jehovah thinks the Christ will not until he or Sniper die. Uh, well, and then do we get to the Sanctum Sanctorum stuff? Not quite yet. Any, anything else before that? Something else to say. Okay. Um, first of all, um, there's probably one of your favorite lines, which was just kind of in the middle of a conversation. It's on page 190. Jed says, here, virtue ethics opposes deontology. I don't know. We do, we do get that. Yeah. And I love how Chagatai's in fact, response is to sigh. <laughs> It, she's like heard this so many he times. Gets into the very thing I kept bringing up before I learned more about the sniper situation. Uh, but but I don't think we have time for that that argument again. Well, it does mean I, I think I call, uh, that 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 Jed just brings up in the middle of this unrelated like like uh, inquiry into his like ability to represent the black the the, the hive less. Um, hey, Bridger was real. Yeah, and then immediately after that, boom, the Sanctum uh, break-in happens. It's like, mm -hmm. um, it reminds me of, in Seven Surrenders, there's a specific line where, um, who could interrupt a nun? Only God, or rather his works. Um, and that's when you find out the Parliament explodes, because Heloise yeah. is talking. So that seemed like a very similar thing here. Um, Jed is here, he's like talking about moral truths and philosophy, and he brings up Bridger, and then all of a sudden, bang, um, the Sanctum gets broken into. Mm -hmm. And everybody's immediately distracted from that topic. So we never get more discussion of Bridger and whether other people think he was real or not. Unfortunately. Uh, but it's for the plot reason. And we're, you know, halfway through the book. It's time for the plot to start. <laughs> the plot hasn't I started? Guess moving. I don't know what's been going on so far. If this is... <laughs> oh yeah, no. I definitely agree there's a major shift at this point where it's like, oh, this is serious. Mm -hmm. So someone um, 
explodes the Sanctum Sanctorum mm-hmm. seems bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's a little fight. <laughs> okay. But war seems bad. We'll get to this in a second. There's a little fight about whether the Masons are being rude to the Black Laws by implying they couldn't protect someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have a lot to say about most of that because the rest of what happens is so much, but it mm-hmm. does happen. So our our basic sequence of events, they explode the side of the building. Mm-hmm. Someone gets in and broadcasts a trip. Mm-hmm. They pick up a camera. We get a, we get they a stop live in. stream of, of, of what's happening, which is just yes. so modern. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's very <laughs> amusing. Yeah, it's it's like that whole thing that happened at the American Capitol. Um, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. That's a ridiculous uh, comparison. I love it. <laughs> I watched some of the live streams at that day. There were like, People were live streaming in there uh, at the time uh, to their later detriments. <laughs> <laughs> so some they get into Mycroft and martin's room um the camera is described as jiggling when it's picked up they mm-hmm. go to jehovah's room mm-hmm. they steal something we get another camera jiggle wait where? don't know what that was wait line uh on page 191 uh a jiggle now as the camera is born out of my cell and up the stairs a guard's room then our good guest simple bedroom deep in the tower save for even in the emperor's palace below a pause another jiggle up again, the guards' room's a spiral staircase. So, so they the took pause something. is... You think the pause is theft? I think the pause is what? You think the pause is theft? I think the pause and the jiggle are them stopping in the room, mm-hmm. looking, seeing the thing that they needed. The jiggle is them picking it up, and then they continue. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, they go up. For some reason, the thing they're going after is already open. The vault in the Sanctum Sanctorum. By the way... All the guild breakers are dying. This is probably a sad day to be Martin. Oh, um, yeah. Um, and then... Wait, they go. Where? Well, they're the the guards mm-hmm. of the Sanctum Sanctorum. Mm-hmm. We, we're told about their bodies. Maybe I didn't read this close enough. Just look at in God's room. We see the Sanctums we violated by violators like a marble honeycomb. Papers dripped from sensitive secrets, things people have killed for. Target's already open. I think the guards is a little earlier. Maybe it's later? I'm sure there's a line about... You just assume people... There's a thing about truths men have killed for, but it's not clear that these people have no, killed No, no. I, I, I distinctly remember some line about, um, about the guards... They were, uh, so immediately after an explosion, we see smoky air, mm-hmm. the doll-like figures of unconscious guards, oh, Martin's yeah. singed desk and mine beside it. Unconscious Lunch guards. Lunch detritus smoldering. So unless they, like, fully took these, these sleeping people and tried to murder them, they're, like, fine. I think the explosion described has rendered them a little more than unconscious. <laughs> I think my girlfriend would mention that. We I don't know that guess. he would. Uh... They, they're not having a good day. They're not having a good day. We lost our guest. So, um, what did they take? We discover that... Can you hear me? The Oh, no. Did they lose me? I can hear you. I just can responded we... to you. Hello? Our guest is Now I don't here. think you can hear me. No, I can hear our you. Our guest isn't here? Oh, I thought you were talking about... Uh, I thought you were still talking about the book. No. Because no, good guest, guest is... is a line in the yeah. section we were discussing. Nope. Okay. 
our podcast guest. All right, while no. we wait for him, I'm going to be away from my mic for 30 seconds. Trying to figure out how dead are the, the unconscious guards. I think that since they're unconscious, they're not dead. McEffern mentioned the, the dead people. Uh, yeah, he does say unconscious. I, I don't see that as anything other than unconscious. Oh. Okay, if a desk didn't survive the explosion, I don't think they did. They got singed. And the guards... This got singed. The guards might have been further from the blast radius than the desk. Yeah. These things drop off. So anyway, um, on the table, Jehovah is the next emperor, and until he's persuaded to be Martin. Mm -hmm. I have a thought on this. All right. Mm -hmm. The thought is, Martin is the real intended emperor here. Okay. And that Martin is the one who's been prepped for the role. Mm -hmm. And that Jehovah is listed on this so that if he wants it, he can have it. I... But that the intention of this wording is probably that Martin be the sort of in-place emperor So for the foreseeable future at the very least. I want to draw attention to something you just said. You said that Martin had been prepped for the role. So do you believe that this means that Martin has been physically tortured as the emperor is required to be? And do you believe that Jed has been? Uh, yes and no. I see. So if Jed decides he wants to be the emperor and takes over the position without having had the physical torture, do you think that this would be considered a legitimate succession? E maybe? I don't know enough about Masonic law. Fair. It's whatever the Masons say, and also uh, permanent etched in stone beyond for all of time. Uh, so bullshit. <laughs> uh, Martin has... I think there's a lot of good reason to put Martin in this role. I think we know that Cornell wouldn't be willing to take the opportunity to be emperor away from Jehovah. But my read of this, despite the unfortunate political circumstance in which it came out, was that the intention of this phrasing was that Martin would be the one to take over on the presumption Jehovah would say no. And that, you know, prob, maybe Jehovah would take it eventually. But we know how Jehovah is with O's. So mm. I don't know if that would actually happen. Right. It doesn't just say... There's even a whole thing about uh, how he will not allow him to be forced to take an oath to the Spanish people. I think Cornell is really weird about, or really attentive to Jehovah and oath-taking. And mm -hmm. this is such a weird... Why have a backup that just feels indecisive from an otherwise very decisive organization? I think there's a, there's a chance that, like... Yeah. But it's not should they be unable, it's... Should they refuse? And while they are being persuaded, uh, which, by the way, 9A is translating again. Um, 9A yeah. is not great with Latin, so let me just look that up real quick. <laughs> by their own admission. Fair, but the word is... No, I believe you. Fair, but the word is persuadeatur, which looks like English just straight up borrowed it from Latin, so... Oh, yeah, but there's lots of things where, like, you'd think there's, like... A nice definition, and it just yeah, that's true. Slightly off. And Spanish embarazada is pregnant, so. Uh, okay, so Latin, cuso, so refuse, object, reject, protest, object. So that's just normal. Uh, I I assume persuaded to also persuaded, but like, let me check. Ido Spanish. And no. in fact, we know that this isn't the standard phrasing because we get 
a special line for Martin about how he is nicknamed. Why? What? Why? Yeah. Because I'm assuming most peop- most emperor candidates don't have a nickname they needed to- they need to have included. So Cornell Mason wrote this. He didn't fill in a blank. We were all written like this. I would tend to. It's not that many emperors. You have to do this only once, right? So. I would tend to agree with Liam that most um, emperor candidates don't have nicknames. Have you uh, found it? Yep, subjunctive. Hmm. Exactly as I thought. I know my moods. So what would the subjunctive mood indicate in this case? Oh, um, so if he refuses, it's, 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 um, say what would happen if something would happen. Oh, yeah. Uh, some hypothetical, and that's why they use the subjunctive mood here. Oh, okay, yeah, so, yeah, I, I've heard of subjunctive mood before, I just wondered if it had some other context here. Yeah, okay, right. No, the, this book has done fun things with subjunctive, though. The, the second book has, like, um... Nil upset, nil upset. Nil upset is no, nothing prevents it. Nil upset is let nothing prevent it, or would that nothing prevent it? It's like a, I hope that nothing would prevent it, which is which is nice. So uh, Felix Faust does something in this chapter. Ooh yeah, if they stole the oath of office. Uh, Mycroft reveals that he is fully bought into Masonic propaganda. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't read it that he, way. What he just he does not. He specifically says. However long you think the Empire is old. Ago. <laughs> thousands of ages of... Look, it can't be thousands of, of ages unless ages is like fucking weeks, man. Uh, we were on They Stole the Oath of Office? Mm-hmm. Yes. Seems bad. That seems not justifiable. But um, I can see why someone would want to break into... Like, do this, right? Because they're trying to make sure... Like, if if it was the case, right, that it was any literally anybody else but Jehovah. Oh, you... Really? There's two possible... If it was... There's two possible mm-hmm. motives. Either someone thought it was Jed and wanted to show everyone, or someone didn't think it was Jed and wanted to show everyone. I... Uh... I guess... See, here's the thing. I was pretty sure this was Madame. Why? I actually, um, nope. Uh, why do you think it's Madame? Um, okay, so we know kind of her whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. She's one of the people who would care enough to make sure that Mycroft and Jehovah were not in the room when she blew it up. Mm-hmm. Um, That's an important piece of evidence. And... She kind of loves messy political intrigue. Like, Jehovah even mentions at the end of this chapter, like, well, if you move now, everyone will think that you dishonored the Masons to stop your romantic rival from marrying a prostitute. And Madame would be all about that if that was a thing that happened. (laughs) Another piece of pro-Madame evidence is that she wants Jed to take control of all the hives. And... So she needs to know for sure that it actually is Jed. Like, she might think it's Jed through, like, brillis magic or whatever, but for her to be 100% sure, this is the only way to know. She even says this during the Seven Surrenders chapter. She's like, you can always change the name and I'll have no way of knowing. I I don't think it's Madame. I think Madame wouldn't live stream it. I think Madame... 
trusts her impression of Mason enough that he that he wouldn't she would she would know if he changed it and would need to like steal into the like literally enter steal into the break into the Sacrum Sectorum. Well, <sighs> which by the way is such like a a religious name. I don't know how they get away with that. Sacrum Sectorum is the name of the inner chamber of the temple. Uh, in 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 Judaism, mm-hmm. temple in in temple Judaism because there's different phases of the religion. So like, there used to be a temple. In the temple, there used to be a holy of holies where they kept the Ten Commandments, supposedly. And I don't buy. Sorry, you. Uh, I feel like they get away with it because they're the Masons, and their whole thing is that they predate everything else. So leave them alone. Um, I wouldn't accept that. I wrote down Dominic while I was speculating on who could have done this, but mostly that's because Dominic's been being weird for reasons I don't understand in this chapter. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's actually a, a good explanation for what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I don't think he will win this war if Dominic starts it now. Um, and then I, the the only other good theory I had was that it was the Utopians, but I don't know what the Utopians would get out of it either. The only person who I see being really into this happening is Madame. Because <laughs> she lives for this nonsense. Like, it's <laughs> so precisely her so you So you think that Madame broke in solely to create drama? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I certainly don't think she wouldn't. <laughs> no, it, it fits certain <laughs> aspects of her character, yes. I think she's a little bit more goal-oriented than that. Well, yes. It's like a smidge. As I pointed out, it also allies with her goal of getting Jed to rule the world. So, but it doesn't really, right? Because if it, 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 what if he changes it afterward because of um because it was exposed? Mason. Yeah, it's a good. That's a good point. Okay, let me do a a quick thing that I've had to do several times in this book and flip through the seven ten list at the start real quick. <laughs> um, Handy, right? Do I think Mason did it to set himself up? No. Do I think Martin did it? No, but boy, would that be a would that be one to call if it turned out to be true? <laughs> Martin out of the blue betrays the Masons. Yes. Uh Kusala, no. Ansley. Ansley hasn't done a lot, but I don't see what this accomplishes for them. Spain, I like also no. Uh Dominic, I just don't know what Dominic's doing. Felix, probably not. He's too busy with his own stuff. I don't think Mycroft did it. I don't think Jehovah did it. Sniper? I don't think Sniper did this either. I think Sniper would have maintained the truce, because he's called out as one of the people that did, along with Tully at the start of the last chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and Achilles, I just, I don't know how he would have pulled it off. Like, sure, he has Utopia on his side, and I did think about Utopia, but... I agree. Actually... This is not a good way for the war to start. If you think about Utopia, right, like, um, fully they thought that the, that they broke into a high security bash that runs the world transportation system as like a prank. That was like the initial introduction we had to Utopia. That's true. I had forgotten about that. So I think it's like some chance that like some Utopians thinking will of course de- the the Masons didn't make our deal alien. Um the the Emperor, I just need to let everyone know that and things can calm down. Through Mycroft's room, didn't they? Yeah. Who visited Mycroft again? What was the full list? I only wrote down the the fake names. So uh <laughs> you're uh, talking about chapter ten. I wrote down everyone. 
Yeah. It was who visit who could have planted a bomb. I wrote Martin, uh, Anox, which is Jed, um, Jalu, which is Martin's spouse, um, Saladin, uh, Mercer, Kohaku, Faust, Ansele, Geneva, and Kosala. But like he's basically saying a thing. Lots of people just sort of streamed him out of the room, and eventually Voltaire visited. Um, and we know pa- later. That's Madame's utopia. And we know Papa visited in Chapter Ten as well. Yeah, Voltaire visited because the entire time he kept people kept fucking dying. Utopia kept fucking kept dying, and they kept blinking on and off. I don't think Papa would be a terrorist. Voltaire, though, owned by Madame Voltaire. Yeah, I, I think this is Madame. That's okay. that's my pitch. Okay. All right. Anyway, I'm I'm super super excited to read the next chapter. Because I have no idea how he got 128 days. I, I'm at a loss. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what you would make of that. That's... I, I don't understand it. Uh, oh, and then the last note I had here was... Um, I don't think Mason could have done anything else. Done anything else other than what? Other than what he did. More Which or is less. not... not- Stop the war immediately. Wait a couple days. I think a couple... Yes. And purely because he had a precedent already set, you cannot have an inviolable system uh, if you are willing to violate it. Like, otherwise, when you are in a tense situation like this, everyone will be able to take advantage. So I, I think he has done the most he possibly can within the bounds of his office to not start a war at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, it's worth noting that he was only convinced to by Jed. And only on, like, personal things, right? The the world is still hanging by these personal issues between leaders, which is fucking so bad. Well, it isn't great. That part of this is not excellent. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you can't... You need to be willing to back up your claims about what you will do if someone betrays your empire. Even under duress. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, he promises to uh, to offer Tully Marty a unprotected execution if he, they turn him in. If he turns himself in now, Tully Marty hasn't done anything except in, maybe inside a riots. That's true. <laughs> He'd just uh, be like fucking Tully, killing him. Doesn't he still think Tully coordinated with Sniper? Does he? Like I don't know. he knows because. They called Tully and Sniper as a team and negotiated for Mycroft with Jehovah. What's their team now? Because Sniper broke them out of jail, right? No, but this was like three, da- like two days ago. Two weeks. When they got Mycroft back. Oh, yeah, I guess. But he shouldn't be able to kill somebody just because they kidnapped somebody. Well, uh, if... <laughs> I mean, Sniper did a little more than that. <laughs> I'm not talking about Sniper's death. Sniper's death is... Not it's not great. You want to torture them, but like, uh, it's understandable in a way. Tully Marty says it's not to me. I think Tully Marty has pretty clearly established himself as a as definitely an enemy of, or at least aligned with an enemy at this point. An enemy of yeah, whom? Sure, but you don't get to like fucking torture people to death because they aligned with your enemies. I think Mason has made pretty clear that he does. Right, Corn- yeah, Mason sucks. Well, yeah, that, I agree with you, but Liam doesn't, so... <laughs> he, he had a whole speech 
early on about the bonds of trust. Uh, like, if that's the framework he's going to operate in, what else has Tully... There were a couple of suggestions about Tully Marty being a criminal in this chapter, and I'm going to be honest with you. I forgot the crime stuff Tully had done. So, until during this recording, I kind of just thought Tully had been out doing crimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's easy to get that impression. Robbing banks. Because whenever Mycroft speaks about Tully, it's always in this, like, hilariously negative terms. Um, when Tully is, what, like, 18 years old, he's, like, um, in in the Hobstown chapter, actually, the, when they're talking about Hobstown, there's a line where Mycroft says, um, any hive member who broke a law here would be regarded as more barbaric than the barbarians. Not even Tully would dare. It's like, yes, if you had to pick a Hive citizen who would break a law, obviously Tully Marty is the one who would do it. Like, that's just how Mycroft is. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I don't know. If you give me, like, a day to figure out what's going on here, I might have a better, a better take on it than, uh, than that I misunderstood the text and that Tully hasn't, in fact, just been doing crimes this whole time. Now I want to talk about how Stalin once robbed a bank with grenades. What? Yeah. What? Ha- why? For money. Oh, for money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> they needed to fund the um the you know the Social Democratic Party of Russia. Uh, I think that by that time the Bolsheviks had like split off from the Mensheviks. Um, so they robbed a bank. <laughs> they, they, uh, they, they, there was like a, a like a truck carrying money in like Siberia. And they blew it up with grenades, and they threw some grenades around to scare people, people off. And they stole all the stuff, and they, they got away, actually, cleanly, with the money. That's pretty impressive. Um, there's it, Jehovah has a questions Mycroft about whether or not he's making humanity worse. Mm-hmm. Um, probably. Do we? I think we all agree <laughs> on that, right? Yeah, I think we agree on why, but yeah, yeah Jehovah's yeah. making... Well, there's a, specific, there's a specific phrase here. He says, I make you violate the inviolable... And inviolable is in the title of this chapter. Um, and so this is kind of a big theme of the books in general, um, but especially uh, this chapter. Um, and that is, you set up this whole system, and it was like, no one could ever possibly do this, and then somebody does it. So uh, <laughs> there's, like, uh, madams with, like, gender and religion. Now- there's the position of the anonymous, um, which gets violated at the end of um, Seven Surrenders. Um, uh, Martyr's favorite uh, topic, norm violation. Right, right. Um, I guess I what? owe her credit for this, too. Um, and then, but there's also, Jed, what Jed <laughs> mentions here is the uh, Mason Sanctum, the, the Hobbstown, uh, like the existence of the Tribune as a person. And then, like, the general um, norm violation is, like, peace becoming war um what i what i did expect is the world's greatest secret to be harder to steal uh they really sold the sanctum sanctorum earlier as being well guarded and it turns out it just wasn't uh at all yes it is surprising like this was not a complex they just went in through the side and then walked up (laughs) Part of this... Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot of, like, prep work that just got sort of skated over. And and part of this also relates to the norm violation, right? I mean, part of it is just that 
no one would ever do this. Like, not that they didn't have guards, but they didn't think seriously about the possibility that someone would try to do this. Now, to be fair, um, the consequences do seem to be pretty substantial. Not only are we at on the precipice of war right now, but I am I am given the impression that even if everything was going fine, someone stealing the Mason secrets would result in the Masons declaring war on literally anything they saw until they they got what they wanted. Yeah, uh, yeah. And like that is one version of having powerful secrets. Is it the best one? Maybe not. Is it one I am surprised they have to resort to? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm now picking up conversation from the rest of the house. So I'm going to have to lead us towards the end of this chapter, which I think we've pretty much covered at this point, right? Yeah, I have a few more little comments. Um, mm -hmm. One of them is uh, Caesar's new suit, um, mm -hmm. which in... In peacetime, as we've seen him in the previous two books, it's been all gray with one black sleeve. Um, it is now all black with one gray sleeve. Um, this reminded me of the Filipino flag. So um, in times of peace, which I believe the Philippines have always been, um, the flag has a blue stripe on top and a red stripe on the bottom. Um, and during times of war, they flip it so that the red stripe is on the top and the blue stripe is on the bottom. I thought... You were going to say that this is like a reference to how Jehovah always wears black, because Jehovah is always just handing out death left and right. Well, first of all, that's a good point. But secondly, <laughs> in what way does Jehovah hand out death left and right? Well, he did a little bit start some wars. Did he? Just a, just a touch. Did he? I think that's a popular opinion. I'm led to believe that it is. Fair. Maybe the color black is just associated with warmongers. Uh, what does Tully wear? Uh, well, specifically normal clothes. Very bland outfits. Could be black, then. Could be. Might not be. Anyway, there is... I don't think it's a great line to draw there, but it's... It is a thing. Yeah, speaking of clothing, there's also a nudist black law in this chapter. Oh, I, I completely missed that. Yes. Um... Let's see, uh, page 193. In any other meeting, it would have been someone in charge, not Akari, perhaps, who answered Brill's headmaster. But in this company of sovereigns, it was instead someone I did not know. A grave face in the second row, wise to the mark, and save for her sash and backpack, naked, as is the Black Law's right. Yep, uh, skimmed right past that. Didn't even, uh, didn't even think about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think, ideologically, it makes sense as a Black Law to say, especially in a world that contains the clothing as communication movement, to say, mm -hmm. I renounce all my allegiances, all my, uh, you know, allies. I am my own person, and as such, I wear no clothing. Um, yeah. Other than what is strictly necessary. Um, Just like a, a fanny pack. Uh-huh. And um, the <laughs> Terragnota Discord server pointed out that not Akari's clothing is not described in this chapter, so she could theoretically be naked as well, um, which is... Just interesting. Turns out Hobbs Town is just like a nudist village. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't know. <laughs> Although Chagatai is described as wearing uh, two cloaks, one over the other one. Mm -hmm. So. It's chilly. Yes. All right. Uh, well, we also get that the the biggest utopian city is like attached to Hobbs Town. Uh, yeah, I guess. Is that what happens? It the, has the largest utopian district. 
It says one yeah. of the largest on Earth. Yes. And recall... Which is unexpected. ...that not all utopians live on Earth. I guess there is the moon. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget that the moon... Um, Exists. Uh, I got halfway into that sentence and I realized I didn't want to finish it. <laughs> it's easy to forget that the moon has people living on it in this story. I think that would be fair. I do hope we get to the moon eventually. Mm-hmm. So... That's that's I brought fully us around that to the Minecraft end. is simply just not allowed there. He probably well, he's been. He's been previously, like before he murdered Apollo. I guess that's true. I mean, you murder one cultural hero, and look, nobody ever lets it go. <laughs> so, guest, what have you got for us to go out on? Well, I wanted to talk about how I got into the Terragnona books a little bit. So, okay, um, I was. I attended a small um, college in the Midwestern United States, and it has an honors college program, which is very unusual and was one of the reasons why I chose to go there. Um, So during your freshman year, you study a lot of philosophy, and they also have these two very unusual traditions where uh, the first semester of your freshman year, you and like everybody else in your whole honors college class have to put on a musical. just completely from scratch. And it has to demonstrate some moral point or philosophy. Um, So I was involved with the music writing on mine. It was a lot of fun. Um, And then the second semester, they have something borrowed from the Oxford uh, debates, which I don't know that much about, but we called ours Oxford debates as well. Um, Essentially, there were, oh boy, can I remember the details? There are three speakers on each side. um, And uh, the way that the voting works for these debates is that, you come in uh, on the side with which you are ideologically aligned, um, and then you go out of the room on the side which you felt was a better persuader. Um, so the the debates are scored essentially by how many people changed sides. Um, it's like uh, I think the UK Parliament votes like that. It's something ridiculous. Go on, sorry. Um, so then my my sophomore year, after having experienced all of these really cool philosophically aligned things, um, there was a certain professor who was offering a class on religion, dystopia, and science fiction. And um, he said, naming Two Like the Lightning and Seven Surrenders specifically, that these were the books that he mostly wanted to talk about during the class, but he had to make it look like an actual class. So he like <laughs> set up all these other books. So we read um, The Sparrow by Mary Dariah Russell, which is about a group of Jesuit missionaries uh, going to an alien planet. Um, we read The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Um, we read... Uh, what was that one called? Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which is about a pandemic flu that takes over the or that kills ninety nine percent of the world's population, and most of the book is about the survivors and what they experienced twenty years later, they and their descendants. Um, and it's mostly about like trying to preserve the art and literature of the old world, but there's also an element of religion that comes into it as well. There's a, there's a religious cult in it, which is why it was included in the class. Um, then we read. Uh, shoot. Um, well, we read a book. Oh, The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler, um, mm-hmm. which is about uh, a kind of a future dystopia kind of America. And um, it basically America, uh, I think it was written in like the 90s. It was like America in the 90s, but everything went slowly downhill. And so you end up with this like uh, 
realistic dystopia. Um, and the main character is an African-American girl uh, who creates her own religion, uh, which helps to bind her community together. Um, and then the last book we read was The Hundred, the Hundred Thousand Kingdoms by N.K. Jemisin, um, which in this, it's a fantasy rather than a science fiction like these other ones. Um, and it's about the role. Uh, so the ruling class in this society has essentially enslaved the gods um, and they now kind of serve them and through magic. And so the main character kind of ends up accidentally disrupting the system and like setting the gods free in some way. I don't remember exactly what happened, um, but I remember thinking it was kind of unconnected to the other books in the class because it was so fantasy rather than sci-fi. But um you know, obviously Terragnota has fantasy elements too because of Bridger and all that. And so one thing we did was we analyzed um, the Terragnota books a little bit through the lens of dystopia. Like, is this a dystopia or a utopia? Would you like to live there? Um, things like that. And we also read an article by Ada Palmer on um, religion in science fiction, um, oh. which I wish I could find again. I think I have a copy of it. I know what it is. Oh, you know what it is? Okay. Uh, I, I didn't know what it is. It was a discussion in the 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 in the